Welcome back, folks. I hope you had a good lunch. Again, congratulations to our four directors. And uh, Rick, if you could um, you know, make sure that uh, uh, Jennifer Harnish, uh, Pam Locke, Jim Badger, and Diana Leonard have, a, have the ability to unmute themselves. That would be good. Um, why don't we perhaps start in the order in which um, uh, our directors were um, nominated? Maybe take a couple of minutes to just to say a few words. Uh, Jennifer, if you are there, again, congratulations. And um, uh, you may take the floor. All right. Well, I wanted to thank everyone, um, especially after your TV lunches, uh, for your support, um, because it's really an honor to be on the board. Um, the main thing I just wanted to say is I am always open to conversations with um, anyone involved with the council, because in the work that I do, I'm very committed to supporting blind individuals. Um, I One example over the past year is I, I'm really proud of the number of blind staff and the skills of the new blind staff that we've hired at the Carroll Center. We have three new individuals who are working in our dorms uh, to support our consumers. I just spoke with someone yesterday who we've um, encouraged to apply for a position at the center. Um, we just hired someone on a permanent basis um, to be a technology instructor and a braille instructor and promoted an individual who's blind into a supervisory role in terms of uh, supporting individuals who live in the dorm. And I think most exciting of all is we have a new instructor in our orientation and mobility department who is uh, blind herself. So just very excited about that. And, uh, you know, based on some comments from earlier, some questions, I'm also committed to meeting with those at the Carroll Center who have information on how the funds have been allocated um, to gather uh, that kind of data. Um, I'm embarrassed that I don't know the answer. So I'm willing to admit that. And uh, when I gather that, I'll be getting back to the community. So thank you, everybody. Thank you and congratulations. Um, can't remember the order in which we did things. I know Jim was at the end, but well, how about Pam? Pam next. Yes. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for voting and believing in me for another year as, as a uh, board member. I have really enjoyed the last year. I have learned a lot since it was my first year um, as a board member. Um, and I also love being able to do whatever I can to improve the lives of blind people in Massachusetts. Um, my Some of you know my current role is um, committee chair for membership. So you've probably seen some of the emails I've sent out and will continue to send out. I have a wonderful committee of members and our biggest, I think, thrust this year is to get the word out to more people in the community about BSCB and also 
to work on increasing our um, diversity in BSCB. So um, that'll be something that if there are people out there that are interested in um, issues that regarding diversity, um, please let me know. Um, the person who represents uh, diversity uh, with ACB is, is Mary Haroyan. So I'm sure any of us on the membership committee can listen to your comments or questions and would love ideas if you have any for us to increase our diversity. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. And again, thank you for um, your service so far and the great job that you've done uh, chairing the membership committee. Uh, it's really doing um, good, important things that, you know, keep keep the organization healthy and moving along. Next up. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, Diana Leonard. I do not see Diana unless she's here on the phone. Diana, okay. I don't see her either. Uh, now, Diana might, uh, I think I remember her saying that there were some travel issues. She, she might not actually be uh, on the call with us. So um, assuming Diana isn't trying to unmute herself right now uh, or find her way on, maybe we'll go right to Jim Badger. So Jim, again, congratulations and welcome to the board. You are our one new board member. Thank you. Um, thanks, David. I, I have to say I was, I was really, um, I wasn't expecting that. I was, I was honored when Brian called me. Um, this organization has been very important to me. And, and I think as David said earlier today, we can really take pride in the fact that, that we were the blindness organization that really stood up during this last very difficult period of time. And I'm very, um, you know, I was thinking this morning as as we were listening to the new acting commissioner, um, I'm sure I'm not alone in noticing the difference in the tone and the the honesty and the level of transparency. And I, and it just struck me that, you know, that wasn't a gift. We we played a part, an important part in getting in making that happen. And getting us to this place, and that's really what organizations of the blind, as opposed to for the blind, are about: is that we have agency as a community, and we don't, we are not always seen and heard at the level we deserve to be, but we were seen and we were heard. And um, I'm definitely committed to continuing um, for us to make sure that our voices are not only at the table, but that what we know that we need and what we um you know what, what what we recognize as the needs for of our community are not only heard but that they are acted upon and so i also want to encourage anyone who wants to reach out to me at any point i mean i certainly have my own perspectives about these things as somebody who works at mcb and as somebody who's received services from mcb but it's just my perspective and it's important that all our voices are heard but um, thank you very much, and I, I'm honored to be able to serve on the board. Thank you, Jim, and um, we welcome you to the board, and I'm excited uh, about having you on the board because of the perspective that you just mentioned uh, that you will be bringing. Um, you know, it's a perspective we don't have not had, um, well, in a little while, and that is the perspective of somebody who is, 
you know, an MCB staff member, but who has also received services. So you're seeing it from uh, both sides. So, so welcome to the board. Again, I think Diana um, just may not have been able to be on the call. I knew she had some, um, another engagement, but if she does show up, we'll, you know, at some point, uh, Rick, you can let me know and, and we'll break in and, and Diana can, uh, can say a few words. Certainly. Yeah. So again, um, once again, thank you. Uh, and congratulations to our new uh, directors. And we'll see you all on our next call, which is on June 10th or 11th or something like that. I can't remember when. Um, June 11th. June 11th. Thank you. And Jim, you're going to be put on the uh, on the board list. So you will uh, be privy to all our wonderful, fantastic conversations. And you'll be able to uh, contribute, obviously. Um, you'll also be put on the announce list so you can put... Uh, announcements directly out to the membership if you have something um, that you feel um, uh, should be uh, posted. So I'm going to invite Brian back because now it's time to uh, actually debate um, the resolutions. Um, I don't know, Brian, how you want to proceed. One thing we talked about was just to save a little bit of time uh, not rereading each resolution in its entirety because just the reading of all of that took quite a while, but maybe just rereading just the um, res the resolve clauses. So in other words, uh, not the whereases, but the, the clauses. So, um, and Brian, I don't know if we want to do that again in Braille, or I've got it queued up here to do screen share, but it's up to you. David, because... Uh, there's been some updated information about the first resolution. I think we do need to have it read. Um, and it's the shortest one also. Okay. All right. So, Kim, are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. If you'd be um, as I just have the text that you sent. So you need to stop me when you're to a place where you would suggest that there be a change made. I, I did not make any changes. Understood. Okay. All right. The first one is about the budget for MCB. Whereas the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, we I think we know it's the agency. So I'm going <laughs> to skip that and go down to the next uh, whereas clause. Whereas the state funding of the community services program account that's line item 4110-1000, serving about 90% of the 25,000 legally blind consumers in the Commonwealth, requires an additional $850,000 to adequately fund the staffing and supplies necessary to achieve their independence. And that's the end of that clause. So there is a change here, and that is that the number 850,000 needs to be amended to 1.1 million. That was a change that was actually um, made within the Senate Ways and Means Committee activity before they bring the full budget to the floor of the Senate. So it was 850 going into the committee. It's 1.1 million coming out of the committee. So 
so that that one is its own whereas clause. So I think the next one, again, it's a separate clause. It says the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind contracts with several not-for-profits. I think this is also related to the one we just read. And, um, and it talks about adaptive equipment. So um, I don't think there's any, would be any change there, but it does say, um, okay, it says the increase for all of those services require an increase in the independent living and assistive tech, um, assistive technology earmark of 850,000. So I, I don't know how you want to handle that if it's still necessary because you've changed the previous amount. This does not talk about the amendment 496, which is the other amount of money. I propose we're that about. we strike this whereas. Yeah, I think it is redundant. Um, okay. So I will now go to the now for, therefore, therefore, now for, it resolves stuff. Um, okay. The BSCB calls upon the members of the Massachusetts Senate to support these funding levels when passing the FY23 state budget, including the passage of Senate Amendment 496. And let's see, be it further resolved that the members, then this one's about BSCB members actually reaching out to their senators to secure their support for this essential funding. Understood. And that's the end. So the committee recommends do pass, and I so move. Okay. So, Brian, the procedure is we will have a motion, we'll have a second, and then we will have discussion. Is that right? Correct. So we would not move directly to like a vote, but we Correct. have opportunity for discussion. Okay. So uh, we have a motion. Do we have a second to? Barrier, I second it. We have a second, and now we are open for discussion. How do you want to handle the discussion, Brian? Sometimes people ask for clarifications first, or then sometimes you go straight to people supporting or speaking against it. So, well, you. I, I think at this point, um, clarification would be perfectly okay. So why don't we go with first any questions relative to what was meant by how this would affect those kinds of things. So if you're interested in asking that kind of a question, then please raise your hand. Yeah, we already had some hand raised, so we're going to have to go through this. Uh, Brian, Carl, please, Carl Richardson. So it was me that called Brian with the update. And I just want to, so the governor's budget in the 1,000 account came out with $6.8 The house budget, although they... Past the assisted technology, as Jim mentioned earlier, they did not fund it. So it remained at $6.8 Because of the Carroll Center and Mabby both being in Senator Cream's district, they both supported this eight fifty. but they asked for an additional two fifty on top of the eight fifty, which then became $1.1 So in the Senate Ways and Means budget, it went from 6.8 to 7.9. 
and it came out in the Ways and Means budget that way. So that will not be debated when the budget gets debated next Monday. That will already pass when the budget, when the final budget gets passed, probably by Wednesday, Thursday the latest. However, Jim is right. Uh, amendment 496 was filed as an amendment because that did not come out in the Ways and Means budget. So that still has to be supported. But the debate starts on Monday and will most likely be over by this coming Wednesday. So we have to move very, very fast. And so the 1.1 is almost irrelevant because that's already in the Senate and Ways and Means budget. The way it's not irrelevant is that it was not in the House budget, so it'll have to go to conference, and they'll have to reconcile the House and Senate to be the same numbers, and you're going to want them to accept the Senate version. But first, we just have to get through the Senate. So I just wanted to update everybody on why the 850 is now 1.1, and that it's already in the Senate budget. Okay, Mary Horoyan, please. Okay, thank you. Um, so just, I need some clarification here. The $1.1 million that we're talking about in, already in the Senate budget, that money is for the vendors, for Carroll Center, for, for MAPI? Correct. Okay. Uh, and Amendment 496 is the extra $1 million or so for additional and needed MCB staffing. Correct. Okay. All right. So I, I personally, well, I don't know if I, you want to have my opinion right now, but I think, I mean, I, I, I understand what Carl has just said, but I would be in full support of the Amendment 496, but um, asking for that, for our support on that. But um, I'm, I have um, mixed feelings about the, you know, the 1.1 million for the vendors. Understood. Any other technical questions? This is Cheryl Cummings. Yes. So I want to bring up my other technical question, which is basically, can we split this into two resolutions? You certainly can move to divide the question in doing so, you need to indicate how. So I, I think we, I, I, I would like to ask that we divide the question in that there's one resolution that talks about this 1.1 million airmark and then a second resolution that talks about the 496 or 494 amendment and that 1.1 request. Because it sounds like the airmark is sort of done, and it's just at a point where there's going to be a conference um, to finalize the final number. But it sounds like the money that actually goes directly to MCB um, that will be used to hire staff that everyone says MCB needs um, is not a done deal, and that that is where... Um, it might be most effective for BSCB to put its put its attention and its advocacy. I would like to suggest from a parliamentary uh, approach that you could divide the question and we'd have two different votes on two different sections 
of this resolution and have to send it back to the resolutions committee to make those changes. Or you could move to strike the whereas clause that references the 1.1 million. From, from whose funding? Again, the, Kim? So, um, the, well, I heard a couple of things Cheryl said in the, just that the, the 1.1 million in this resolution references back to line item 4110-1000, the community services line item. And yeah. as Carl said, that is in the budget. It's in the Senate budget. It's not in the House budget. It's not an earmark. It is a line item in the budget. And there's a big difference between a line item and an earmark. So um, just so that can be clear that, you know, the, the difference is the House budget has a different number than the Senate budget when debate happens this coming week. The Senate is going to be debating for, you know, that they're going to be debating amendments. And then at the end of the week, they will vote on the entire budget. So that'll have to go back to conference to settle the, whether it's 850 or 1.1 million on that um, 1000 account. David, with a technical question also. Go ahead. Uh, if we went the way, uh, your your suggested way of dropping that whereas for the SRE remark, how does that change the resolves, if it does at all? I would ask that <clears throat> if, well, quite honestly, it says something like these funding levels, plural, we would be removing the plurality of that because we'd only be talking to one right. aspect, and that's 496, the yeah, amendment. The, the, therefore, be it resolved that BSCB calls upon the members of the Massachusetts Senate to support these funding levels when passing the FY23 state budget, including the passage of Senate Amendment 496. That that is a therefore be a resolve clause right there. And then there's a second one about challenging the members to please get their senators to support. So other than removing the plurality in that sentence, these funds become um this funding. This funding, yes. Um that would be the only change in the be a resolve. This funding. If you if you're just referring to Amendment 496 in this resolution. That's correct. So going back to Cheryl's uh, question, if we were to remove that, that would be removing any reference to the monies in the Senate proposed budget um, referred being referred to the floor of the Senate. Um, but so it's not an endorsement or a repudiation. It's simply a, we are not talking about it, so we don't want you to assume that we support that. Does that make sense, Cheryl? Um, yes, yes. This is Carl. I just want to clarify on the 4110-1000, which is in the Senate Ways and Means. It's an increase. There are no specific vendors named. It even says assistive technology, so MCB could buy their, all their own. It's it basically to boost the SR account. I'm not saying that the Cal Center and Madney weren't behind the increase, 
because they were, but they're not specifically named in the 1000 account. So MCB does have some latitude in choosing their own vendors, um, just but, to make that clear. But I just want to clarify with you, Carl, because the 850, I mean, I, I can see them going into discussion and agreeing you know, that a minimum, they agree with the house that it's 850, which would then give the agency MCB uh, 250,000 that they can then apply for assistive technology. The 850 never made it into the house account. The house account came out, the 1,000 account came out at 6.8. It matched the governance budget. So the 1,000 account did not increase one dime in the house. Okay, so but where's the eight fifty in the house budget? The eight fifty in the there is no eight fifty in the house budget. It's a number. What happened was two years ago, last year, the governor came out with the thing, and they did increase the one thousand account by eight fifty last year. So people are going on old numbers, right? Because but the governor did not include the eight fifty. She went back and looked what Charlie did the year before and mapped it. Okay, didn't look at what the House and Senate passed last year. The House and Senate passed an additional 850 to the 1,000 account. But when Maura Healy released her budget in March, she did not. She just basically level funded what Charlie Baker had proposed the year before. So that's where the 850 and everybody's getting confused with the 850. No, Senator Cream took that 850 and added 250 to it. And just made it one point one million. Does that make sense? It it does and it doesn't because I'm I'm concerned about the airmark thing. So it's are not you really, saying not an it's airmark. not an it's not an airmark in the Senate budget? But it, it well it is and it isn't. It's an airmark toward certain things such as residential programs, assistive technology. But there's no specific. It doesn't say MAPD in the Cal Center. It said residential programs, assistive technology. Now, you could, I mean, how many residential programs does MCB use? And, and, but it could be used for, it, 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 it says this is where the money has to go to, basically SR funding. So basically because VR funding can't go into the 1,000 account. So this is a way of increasing SR funding, okay? And they added 1.1 million to the 1,000 account to increase the SR funding, which happens to also include assistive technology, residential programs, which MAPD and the Cal Center and others will benefit from, but it doesn't specifically name them. So is it saying that this money would go through an RFP or, or a, no. that type? Of, it's it not just increases, It just increases the account by $1.1 million. It's going to be up to MTB how they parcel out the money. It increases the account by $1.1 million. That's all it says. Okay. To those areas. So, yeah. Yeah. So I I still, I think, I mean, I, I don't know how we would do this, but I think Airmark, whatever, should come out of the resolution. Um, and... I don't know if we just want to acknowledge the 1.1 million that's been given by the Senate, um, but then really focus on fighting for the 496 amendment um, that will, if 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 I mean if MCB receives, 
it would help them to increase staff levels, which is something everyone, as far as I can understand, supports. Cheryl, just to follow up the, well, the the whereas clause, Brian said, you know, we should strike that whereas clause. Right. And I wrote strike on my notes. It says contracts with several not-for-profits, including the use of adaptive technology, associated services, all which require an increase in the independent living assistive technology earmark from, you know, so that language would come out that at least that's what Brian recommended. And I wrote strike. So I guess. Okay. Yes. That that does look to me like um, that was the one reference to earmark and it would come out. Yes. So I completely agree. Okay. All right. So we have a motion on the floor to adopt the resolution, but we have a motion on the floor uh, that hasn't been seconded yet to strike that whereas clause. Does anybody wish to second Cheryl's motion to strike that whereas clause. I second the I second the motion to strike the whereas clause. It's Tim Cummings. Okay. So one of the things that I, uh, as the committee chair, would ask Cheryl, why do you want to do this? Because I am deeply concerned about the airmark language, and I'm concerned because. I don't hear the level of accountability um, for the funding, and I'm concerned about tra- transparency, which are things that the um, that the Bay State Council has required of MCB. And if we require it of MCB, we need to require it of the vendors. And if people recall, when I asked John if agencies that receive these earmarks have to report he used the word could and he said they do sort of send in reports but it's not in a way such that the agency can easily gather the data and share it with those of us whose money is going into this so i'm i'm so i think that's that's what i'm I'm concerned about, and that's why I um, recommend, I agree with your suggestion to strike that language. Okay. You've heard uh, a speaker in favor of the motion to strike the resolution, strike the whereas clause. Is there a speaker to uh, disagree or urge a no vote on that motion? Raise your hand. Jim Badger's had his hand up for a while, so I don't know what. I'm Jim? sorry, that was from before. Then what I was going to say got clarified. Sorry. Okay, good. Thank you, Jim. Any other hands raised? Uh, David, I would just say one thing in terms of timing. We got to wrap this up pretty quick because we got two more to go. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Hearing none. Okay. Uh, the the hand just came up. Who has raised their hand? Uh, Jennifer Harnish. Jennifer, you're recognized. So my concern is if we don't keep the language in for that over a million dollars of funds in that line item, that we might lose 
that those funds. And that means the individuals, that's a million dollars less to support the kinds of training that so many of us have benefited from. And I'm just not sure that seems so against the Bay State Council's belief in the importance of training for individuals to live such a full life. So I, I'm very much against that. And I'm, I'm trying very hard to separate that from where I am employed uh, because we are a provider of those services. So I am speaking to this as a blind individual who would not be where I am today in terms of my own adjustment to my vision loss, in terms of the skills that I've developed, were it not for those services that are available. And also to the impact I've seen on so many people um, who now have those services available to them. And Good. Anyone who wishes to speak for the motion? Oh, this is Carl. It's already in the Senate Ways and Means budget, which means it's already essentially passed. So, you, Jennifer, you're not going to lose it in the Senate budget no matter what. Um, I don't, I'm not really for or against. I just want people to understand the 1.1 is already in the Senate budget. It's just not in the House budget. And since this resolution is towards the Senate, it's already there. Uh, David, could I add a quick clarification on something? Please. Uh, so, very quickly, historically, why the effort to have earmarks? And I'm going to speak bluntly. Um, we did not trust the past commissioner to spend the money correctly or even at all, because when the first earmark came along, he didn't even let folks know. We didn't start, people didn't, that, those funds did not become available, the first and second earmarks, until April of a year when the um, fiscal year closes in June. Um, so the Carroll Center and MAPV felt one, if there's an earmark, that's what sort of forces them to spend the money. If the two, if two organizations are no are named, and again, it's not those only those two. There can be other organizations, but they're named for a certain level. Um, what that the practical implication of that is, they don't have to go through an RFR RFP process. And once the funds are available, within probably about one month, they can start being used. So last year, uh, Carroll Center MAPV had access to those funds basically in September or October. And I do understand the argument for transparency, but the going through the RFR RFP process, if the organizations are not named, basically adds three or four months onto that. So the funds do real, don't really become available for expenditure. Let's say the budget is approved in, let's say August, the funds don't become available, practically speaking, probably till January. Or February. This is, so. this is Cheryl. Can I can I say something in response to that? Sure, but then we're going to have to cut off debate. Yeah. I'm okay. So I I'm just gonna I just I, I apologize, David. I'm just going to challenge you a little bit in the sense that um, even if the quote unquote dollars doesn't aren't really available until later on. Um, being a former vendor 
of MCB, I mean, you don't stop serving people. Um, so I, I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, the regular process somehow impacts people's abilities to really get services. Um, so I just, you know, because, and, and I think usually the budget's July, August, you sign documents, maybe September, and money comes through usually October. Um, so, or, or I should say that that was my small agency's experience. So, Very good. All right, we've heard debate on both sides of the motion. Again, the motion is to strike the whereas clause that references the $1.1 million for the SR line item. Rick, are all hands down? Yes. All those in favor of striking this whereas clause, please raise your hand. Again, on a Windows PC, that's Alt-Y. On a Mac, it's Command-Y. On Excuse me. Pardon me. Option-Y. I always get those backwards. Uh, on your regular phone, it's star 9. And on your uh, iOS tablet or phone, you'll find a choice for more. And under more, there's a raise my hand button. Voting is open now. To vote yes. Or to vote for the motion to strike the whereas clause. All right. All those who voted for the motion, your hands should get lowered. All those against striking this, raise your hand. It's 14 for and 14 against. When this happens, that is a what looks to be a tied vote, since the motion was to strike and it did not get a majority of the vote, then the motion fails. So the whereas clause remains at this point. If somebody wishes to speak in favor of the motion to adopt the resolution, indicate by raising your hand if you want to speak to this. Please speak about things that haven't already been spoken. Okay, Cindy Wentz has her hand up. Cindy, you're recognized. Okay. Well, I do want to just... Um, kind of second what Cheryl said, and also say that as a former state employee, I think there might be options other than having to issue an RFR or having an earmark. You know, there might be a middle ground. Very good. Anybody wish to speak against? Uh, this is Cheryl. So, Cheryl, you're recognized. Although I completely support the 496 amendment, um, I, I can't endorse uh, the resolution with the airmark language in. Um, so I, I would say, you know, the issues I raised before still stand if there's any sort of support of airmarks. 
Very good. Thank you. Anybody else wish to speak in favor Mary, of the Mary Haroyan, please? Mary Haroyan is recognized. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of losing track of whether I'm speaking in support or against, but I guess my overall feeling is I I I want to support funding for MCB when MCB has the full of uh, um, flexibility and in order to be able to distribute its funds. I want it to have its proper funding and, but I don't want it to be, I don't want the earmarks telling it how and where to spend the funds. It should know where to spend the funds and it knows who its vendors are. So I just don't want it to be, um, you know, I know we had the negative experience with the current or the former MCB commissioner, but prior to that, we wanted MCB to be properly funded and we didn't tell it how to use its funds. And I like to, for us to go back to that. So again, would you encourage people to vote for or against the resolution as originally submitted? If this resolution is telling MCB that it needs to distribute funds to particular vendors, um, then I would have trouble supporting it, even though I do support uh, Amendment 496. I'll take that as a uh, no side of the debate. That gives us an uneven number on both. So is there anybody who wishes to speak in favor of the res of adoption of the resolution? Deanne Elliott, please. Deanne, you're recognized. Hi, this is Deanne. Um, I, I plan to vote in favor of it. I think that we've long supported funding for uh, more programming in the blindness community. It may not be a perfect or ideal solution, and I do trust that MCB will be more transparent now going forward. But I, I guess I'm not seeing um, uh, quite the same level of harm in it. So uh, that's just my two cents. All right. We have now heard an equal number from Pro and con. So we're going to go to a vote. All those in favor of adopting resolution 2023-01 dealing with MCB funding, raise your hand. Anybody who wants to vote no on passage of this resolution, indicate by doing your hand up. It is 2848 against. Very good. So the motion to adopt this resolution has passed. We now move on to the next resolution. Resolution. Hi, this is Kim. Yes, Kim. And I am putting my other hat on, which is as chair of the awards committee to speak to the president and say that I um, I invited our award winners to come at this scheduled time. Some of them have conflicts and they have to go to other places. So um, I would respectfully ask that we stop so we can do the awards so I can recognize the people that we were charged to recognize and then return to this after that. And okay. I would respectfully ask for my speaker as well, because he's planning on being here on time. Yeah. Uh, part of the issue we have is uh, the whole string of our next speakers are external. So if I could ask, I, I, I think, um, uh, Maybe we can come back to the res the remaining two resolutions uh, towards the end after we've gotten, um, you know, 
after we've had our sessions with the external speakers. So that would be um, president. I yes. was willing to give up my time slot if it's required for us to put things back into proper timing. Well, we can look at it then. Yours is going to be a lot of really fun, interesting stuff. So, well, uh, I kind of think so too, but yeah, you know, it's not essential. Okay, why don't we uh, why don't we decide that when we come to that point? But I, I would agree with uh, Kim. It's it's probably good we get on with the program because we do have external speakers. So thanks so far. I think that was a good debate, useful debate. Um, and we will move on. Now, uh, let me go back to the um, um, the um, agenda. Just a moment. Now, we do have one external speaker, if it's okay, if this person could speak first, uh, Kim, and that is Rachel Schroeder, who is the ACB board liaison. Is that okay, Kim? Can the others? One of my award recipients has a timeline to go to the airport. So I told her I would put her first and okay. then she can depart. So if Rachel's amiable, <laughs> I would really like to have us be able to publicly recognize this award recipient. Okay. Uh, Rachel, would you be okay going a little bit after our award ceremony? Yeah, um, I can do that. Um, I have a little bit of time constraints too, but I don't think that should interfere with it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your flexibility you, there. Um, so again, um, we'll, we'll now move to the awards um, ceremony. Again, thanks to Kim. Thank you, Kim, uh, thank you. to you and your committee for all the work you've done. And I know from the board side, uh, you know, we uh, needed to approve. Uh, and we were just very, very impressed with your selections. And I think we all will be after you reveal them. So go ahead, Kim. Thank you, David, for, for that consideration. And I want to recognize and thank um, Pam Locke and Jerry Barrier, who are the other members of the BSCB Awards Committee. So our first award recipient um, is a special recognition. Um, the awards committee recommended that BSCB offer forward um, the Bay State Council of the Blind Media Award this year. As many of you may recall, on April 2nd, 2023, the Boston Globe published a story entitled Inside the State Commission for the Blind, Alleged Verbal Abuse Shrinking Services questionable spending. That article was written by investigative journalist Elizabeth Coe, and the story publicly exposed leadership concerns at the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind that had been documented and expressed by MCB employees and BSCB advocates for many years. It, it took special skill to write an investigative story that is clear, concise, and compelling when the facts are buried in layers of administrative detail and the audience may not be familiar with the blindness community. Many advocates were challenged by MCB issues that did not yield easily to tried and true advocacy techniques. 
And as Elizabeth Coe did her research for the story, she interviewed with many people to get the facts. She was quite impressive in her grasp of the complex array of boards and past events at the agency. She listened carefully and didn't make inaccurate assumptions. Her questions were fair and thoughtful, and the language she used in the final article was sensitive. She took our issues very seriously. So as I had the opportunity to speak with Elizabeth, I could tell her level of commitment and her dedication to her profession. And what I said to her was that she helped us take the lid off a problem that had been festering for many years, and she brought public scrutiny to our issue. She heard our voice, and she reflected our voice on the front page of the Boston Globe. You can't get much better than that. And so it's my pleasure today to recognize Elizabeth Coe with the Bay State Council of the Blind Media Award. Congratulations, Elizabeth. She is here, and I hope she'll be able to say a few words. Hi, Kim. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks so much for this award, and many thanks to you and to the Bay State Council of the Blind. I'm incredibly touched by this very kind gesture. I will be brief because I want to be mindful of everyone's time. Uh, at the Globe, I think we all aspire to tell stories that hold powerful institutions accountable and amplify people's stories and to be able to work on this story was really an honor. Um, I think, right, we don't always do this for, we don't necessarily do this for the awards. Um, and the real prize in this work, which this award symbolizes in part, is the trust that sources on this story placed in me and in the globe. And I want to thank the people in particular who spoke up to us, uh, despite fear of retaliation and reprisal. Uh, one of the reasons I think being in local news is so important is because we get to tell stories like these and we wouldn't be able to do it without everybody's support. So thank you very much and I'm really honored. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well-deserved. Um, and we're very proud of your work and really appreciate what you did for our community. All right, David, I just wanted some clarification. Should I proceed with all of the awards as quickly as possible? And then we'll hear from Rachel. Uh, yeah, I think that would be fine. Okay. Let's 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 uh, continue with the rewards. Okay, then I'm going to recognize um, Pam Locke to make the next presentation. Um, the Community Access Award goes to an individual or an organization that has demonstrated a commitment to increased access for blind and visually impaired persons. This could be access to the printed word, transportation, the arts and or unemployment. And this award has been, is being given to Joseph Culp, who is a certified orientation and mobility specialist at the Carroll Center. Over the last 40 years, Joe has facilitated the independence of over a thousand individuals who are blind to travel independently and safely in the community. Joe is an outstanding instructor and a stellar human being. He has a deep understanding of 
and respect for all that goes into striving for independent travel for blind consumers. He knows how to listen to the needs and hopes of his students and to translate that information into training that gets to the heart of those needs and hopes. With great humility, integrity, and even some humor, Joe exhibits non-judgmental respect in his work. Thank you, Joe, for your contribution to the blind community. Well, thank you, uh, Pam. Thank you, Kim. I'm very, very grateful to the Bay State Council's uh, leadership team and all of you uh, for this special recognition. It was a real surprise to me when I found out earlier this week. And, and it, I have to say it touches a special place uh, inside me because it comes from you all. You know, my colleagues, uh, I see a couple of my students on the call here, or just people I know, friends of mine in the community. Um, it was really, really my privilege to work with you, uh, be trusted by you, perhaps walk with you through some of your travel difficulties. Um, but most of all, I really want to thank you for sharing yourselves and your gifts with me, you know, for enriching my life, for showing me uh, how to face into my own fears, for opening me up to take on, you know, my own unfamiliar areas, remember those? And even challenging me to become a better instructor and a better person. And for that, I can never repay you. I really can't. But I, I just want to wish you all the best. And perhaps we'll get a chance to cross paths uh, sometime in the future. So I'll look forward to that. But until then, Godspeed to all of you on your road ahead. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. So so well stated and so like you to um, to be so gracious and humble. And you're just a kind man. I can't say anything better about you than that. So um, congratulations. It's very well deserved. Thank you. All right. Next, I'll recognize Jerry Barrier to present the um, Betty Gazagian Advocacy Award. Okay, thank you, Kim. The Betty Gazagian Advocacy Award. This award goes to a BSCB member who has performed exemplary ag advocacy work, which can include work on a national, statewide, or local issues. Um, this award is given out at the discretion of the BSCB Board of Directors. And the recipient this year is a guy who just got elected to the board of directors, Jim Badman. Uh, Jim, I believe, is from Swampscott. He's a, an MCB employee and acting president of the CEIU uh, Union 509. And he was involved during uh, COVID, during the closing of two offices, regional offices, and his union um, – service demonstrated significant personal courage and fortitude. He was outspoken about internal policies and practices that, <coughs> that the union believed compromised services to clients. And he publicly supported 
the highest standards, sometimes putting himself at odds with senior staff. His decision to speak out um, uh, at the statutory advisory board meeting as a union leader uh, helped to educate consumers about conditions that were negatively impacting staff and, by extension, consumers. Jim's long association with MCB as a consumer and as an employee allows him to speak from a perspective not shared by many. As an officer with his union and in his, law, in his role as a rehabilitation teacher at MCB, he has always focused on the needs of the consumers the agency serves. He was one of the origin, origin organizers of an unprecedented uh, no-confidence vote against the commissioner and helped to put together a coalition of staff and consumer advocates, resulting in the resignation of the commissioner on April 7th. Uh, Jim, congratulations uh, both for this award and also for being elected to the board, and best wishes to you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm very honored to be um, in this uh, great group of people, BSCB, but also the other winners of awards today. I, you know, in many ways, I was um, I was in the right place at the right time when the office closures happened. I was a, a union officer, and I w and I was a member of the community. So I can't take credit for that. I guess I'll, what I will take credit for is recognizing that I was in the right place at the right time and that the most important thing was for us to reach out and create an alliance between the people who provide the services at MCB, some of whom are also blind, some of them whom are not, um, and other and and the community and members and leaders in the community. And I um the the people who who stood up who were coworkers of mine many of whom are not blind many of whom could have gone through the rest of their lives and not spoken up or chosen to do a different kind of job and decided this is just too much for me um between them and the people the members of the community who who spent I mean we spent nights mornings weekends uh, um it's amazing the amount of work that people put in a lot of times feeling like we were voices crying in the wilderness and you know eventually getting to the point of doing a no confidence vote and of reaching out to the boston globe and having elizabeth co um do the amazing thing that she did in putting that article together so many people had told us it was too small a story. We were too small an agency. It was too small a community. People wouldn't understand it. That absolutely turned out not to be true. And I, I remember seeing it the day uh, my wife brought me home the paper edition to, that was when I realized it was on the front page and realized, you know, so often we're not heard or not seen, but boy, we were seen and heard then. And, um, you know, I, I just I'm, I'm very grateful to all the people here, all the people who are not here, who um, worked towards where we are now and 
we all have a lot to be proud of. And now that we've gotten our voices heard and now it's, it's been acted on, I'm, I'm just so glad that we're working together to make sure that our voices don't become silenced again and that we don't become invisible anymore. Thank you, Jim, and congratulations. All right, finally, um, the last award is one of our most important in Basic Council. It is the Outstanding Service Award. And this award is given to an individual or an organization that provides products or services of particular value to blind persons. Um, this award may be presented annually. The appropriate candidate is usually a company or individual who provides a tangible product or service or makes a real difference in what they do for people who are blind or have low vision. This year's individual is the founder and president of a major international blindness and braille software translation firm. He is a mathematician by education um, and schooling, Boston College, um, in degree in mathematics, and Northeastern University master's degree in mathematics, and has designed software for most of his working life. Um, he worked at MITRE Corporation before helping to found a company called Duxbury Systems here in Massachusetts. Under Joe Sullivan's leadership since 1975, Duxbury Systems has produced the world's leading software for producing and translating Braille, the Duxbury Braille Translator. From one language, English, to over 190 different language versions of the Duxbury Braille Translator, Joe Sullivan and Duxbury Systems have grown to meet the world's need for Braille translation and is used in most Braille producing nations around the globe. Duxbury is used inside most computer operating systems, inside Braille note takers, and even with screen readers, as well as other software and hardware products around the world. Duxbury and the DBT translator imports many document formats, translates into Braille, and sends the Braille to your Braille embosser or your Braille device. Um, DBT produces mathematics and scientific text for many languages. The Duxbury software is fully accessible for someone who is blind and is in tune with the latest advances in operating systems and applications. Present affiliations for Joe include his membership of the on the Unified English Braille Code um, Maintenance Committee of the International Council on English Braille, the Braille Authority of North America um, Committee, his publications include Braille translation in, and the uses in computers 
in aiding the blind. That was a leading paper that he wrote internationally. He's received much recognition, um, including the Golden Keys Award from the National Association to promote the use of Braille. The Winston Gordon Award from the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. The Miguel Medal from the American Foundation for the Blind. And the Braille Excellence Award from South Africa. And the Excellence Award from the Braille Authority of North America. Um, Joe was named as one of President Obama's Champions of Change for STEM equality for Americans with disabilities in a White House ceremony in 2012. Joe has been recognized for many things, but I would just have to say he, he is a man who is quiet, tends to work behind the scenes, Many people don't know he's there, but he's constantly working in the Braille field and has brought accessibility to Braille translation and production all over the globe and done it in his quiet, humble style. Joe is um, married to Jen, and together they have seven children, three of whom work now at Duxbury Systems. He has 14 grandchildren and one grand great-grandchild. Joe is semi-retired, but I don't think he'll ever stop doing the work that's been his life's passion, creating software and making Braille accessible for blind people all over the world. Joe, congratulations on your lifelong achievement. We owe you tremendously for the role you've played in making Braille literacy a reality around the globe. And if you'd like to say a few words. Thank you so much, Kim, for those very kind words. And and honestly, uh, I I am, as I, as I said to you uh, when you mentioned this coming up, uh, flabbergasted at my age. Uh, <laughs> I still, still uh, thought of it as involved in this, which, of course, I, I am to some extent. But there are so many other people doing such such work that that uh, I need to point to in Duxbury, for example. I know all of you know uh, Don Breeder, who who uh, has has far more knowledge than I do as to how Duxbury is used with different rail embosses. And if anything comes up involving <laughs> involving uh, uh, driving of any kind of device, it, it it's uh, Don that I would turn to to uh, to solve that problem. And indeed. Through the years, uh, I, I hope that my work has been useful, but it has been to me much more re- much more rewarding than than what effort has, uh, I've had to put into it because of all of all of the people that I've come to know throughout the world really uh, and been inspired by as to their uh, dedication to basically to the subject of literacy and the the question of Equal access to the to uh, to information, which I think is is the heart of the Braille experience. So, again, I'm I'm very very honored, very humbled that that you would 
you would think of me in this in this regard, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm very much inspired by the work you're doing. And and I've heard, having heard the, the previous award winners, realize that there's a great deal happening that uh, that is of great importance, which I'm very pleased to see. So again, thank you, and uh, I will <laughs> have a, another award to hang on, on my wall. <laughs> my, 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 my wife here is uh, smiling at me. <laughs> she, she is uh, uh, wondering, uh, you know, where were we going to put this? But <laughs> in any case, again, very much uh, thank you. Thank you. Congratulations, Joe. And I will be... Um, getting the physical awards to all of our recipients in the next few weeks. So again, congratulations to all our winners and thank you to the committee and the board for supporting our recommendations. I think we had an amazing group of um, recipients this year and there's a lot of talent and wonderful people in Massachusetts. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kim. And and I second what you said, uh, really an amazing group of recipients. Um, as, um, as the award winners were, were speaking, um, it reminded me of the old saying, you know, it takes a village. Yes, you know, we as members of the blindness community ourselves, members of organizations like BSCB, we've got to stand up, we've got to advocate, we've got to help ourselves. But it takes a cross-section of other categories of folks too, to move us forward, such as, you know, dedicated service providers, such as an OMM, O&M specialist, such as technologists, such as um, uh, staff in state agencies like MCB, and on occasion even um, somebody from the media to highlight uh, issues uh, that, you know, we need to uh, to get out there in front of the rest of the world. So again, congratulations to the award recipients. Um, you really deserve the awards. If there's only one regret I have, it's that we didn't have enough time to maybe hear one or two of Joe Kolb's amazing stories from his years of out there in the streets. I, I heard one once that somehow during an OM, O&M uh, lesson, he caught a, a thief or a burglar or a, or, a, or, a, or a bank robber or something like that. So I'd like to hear that one again from him, but fortunately we don't have time for that. So again, Thank you all. And again, thank you, uh, Kim, Pam, and Jerry, for your hard work coming up with these great award recipients. Uh, next up is I'd like to introduce Rachel Schroeder or have uh, Rachel introduce herself. Rachel's going to talk for a few moments about uh, her role as uh, sort of a new initiative. It's called ACB Board Liaison. She is a member of the ACB board and she's also been very active for a number of years uh in the illinois state affiliate so rachel again thank you for uh, agreeing to uh be with us today sorry a little bit about how the uh the timetables got a little bit flip-flopped um but uh, you have the floor all right thanks david uh <laughs> i'm just hanging out in the sun this is you know not probably the first uh convention presentation to come from odd places but probably the first to come from a car in the parking lot of a trampoline park while my daughter is at a birthday party so <laughs> so um it's rain it's raining here so anyways yeah it's it's actually sunny here for the first time in a while um <laughs> so we've had our share of rain too but um 
good day for a convention, right? Um, but thank you for having me. So if you hear any noise in the background, it's probably kids running around or something. But, uh, you know, little little background uh, ambiance there. Um, but thank you for having me. Um, I, as David said, I am the board liaison for the Bay State Council. And um, basically, um, I was elected to the board. I was honored to be elected to the board uh, this past year uh, for the first term um, after um, terming out as president of Illinois Council of the Blind. So I'm kind of having fun in my new role. Um, you know, I've been on national committees before, but um, my first time serving on the ACB board. So part of that role of course, is uh, what David had said um, about being a about having board liaisons for all of the affiliates. And basically what that means is those of us who are on the board, um, we are responsible for um, communicating with our affiliates. Uh, each of us has about six affiliates to communicate anything that we need to communicate um, back from national and also to be that communication from you all to ACB national. You know, if there's any concerns or issues, um, I try to stay in touch with uh, what's going on as best I can with each of those affiliates and try to assist wherever I can to bring some national perspective to any questions you might have. Um, I had one affiliate that I've been working with on some resolutions, uh, for example. And I just try to check in every so often um, to make sure um, that if there's anything that I can do, be of service to Bay State or any of the other affiliates that I can do that. Um, I, um, I have an email that I am happy to share with all of you in case there's anything that um, I can do for you all if you have questions. Um, I look forward to also meeting many of you at the convention in Schaumburg this year. Um, really excited to have the convention. It's kind of like uh, 2020 was dress rehearsal. We thought we were going to have it. And next thing we know, uh, COVID hit. So we put the brakes on it. But um, it's all full steam ahead this year. And we're really looking forward to having the convention in 2023 that we were not able to have in 2020. So really looking forward to having all of you here in Schomburg as well. Um, but I'm happy to give an email out. Um, and well, David has my email. That might be the better option. Um, he has my email and, and David, please feel free to share that to anyone that would like it or share it on the list. Sure, if um, yeah. there's anything, anybody's, Certainly welcome to get in touch. Um, do you, are there any questions for me? I don't know if I covered everything that you were looking for, but I just wanted all of you to know that I'm out here. I'm here to serve Bay State Council in any way I can and uh, happy to do so. Uh, Rick, we could take one question because, again, we're time challenged. Mary, give Rachel a hard time, please. Oh, come on, Rick. Mary, Mary, <laughs> I used to like you. Mary, Mary or Ryan, please. Okay. Hi, Mary. Hi, hi, Rachel. Thanks, Rick. Um, no, Rachel, um, well, thank you for being here today. And I just, just a 
general question, wondering if you know, I, I tune into the board meetings, which is they're really interesting to listen to. And we're just wondering if anybody ever had a question um, that they wanted, ever wanted to be elevated to the board. Um, could they send that along to you? And that would be something you could share with the board or, um, you know, how that yeah. might work. I think how that would probably work is that if you have a question that you want to get to that level, um, I would certainly uh, take that and um, present that prior to the agenda to see if it's something um, that the president would would be up for throwing on the agenda. Um, you know, sometimes questions might have a little more they need to go to before they go to the board sometimes, but I am always happy to take any questions or concerns to the um, leadership of ACB. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Oh, so next up, I have the honor to uh, introduce our next session, which is on telehealth. And our main speaker is going to be uh, Clark Rashville, who is the head of um, advocacy for uh, ACB National. And uh, he and Jeanette, Jeanette uh, reached out to Clark, and he's going to tell us a bit about some of the initiatives, some of the things that um, ACB is involved in nationally. And then if we have some uh, a little bit of time, you know, we'll, we'll open it up and people may talk a little bit about their own experiences uh, with telehealth, particularly during these last few years of the pandemic. So, Clark, take it away. Hold, hold on, David. I just or Jeanette, wanna, take it away. <laughs> I, I, I want to do a reasonable introduction for Clark. Okay. And give me one second to get there. I am yielding my time. I was going to say a few things, but since we are running late, I'm going to save them for another day. Clark Rackfall is the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, ACB. In this role, he leads ACB's legislative and regulatory agendas, as well as member-driven and individual advocacy efforts to further the organization's mission of security, independence, equality, and opportunity for all people who are blind and experiencing vision loss. Clark embraces the ACB core values of integrity and honesty, respect, collaboration, flexibility, and initiative in all that he does to support the necessary changes required for successful interventions uh, of equality. He represents ACB on various corporate technology and communication accessibility boards, as well as the Federal Communications Commission's Disability Advisory Committee and Consumer Advisory Committee. Prior to joining ACB, Clark served in public policy positions for national industries, for the blind, and 
Verizon Communications Incorporated. In addition to his policy background, Clark is a Paralympian and world champion in the sport of tandem cycling. Clark holds a Bachelor of Science degree from uh, Towson University, I hope I said that right, in political science and economics, and lives in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife, Greta, and their two dogs, Summit and Cricket. Please join me in welcoming Clark Brackfall. Janet, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, David Kingsbury and the rest of the Bay State Council of the Blind for this opportunity to join you today. Um, as Jeanette said, my name is Clark Rockfall, and I work out of the American Council of the Blind National Office in Alexandria, Virginia, on behalf of all of you. Um, you know, I was intending on following Kim Charlson's lead and having my video on, but my computer's telling me that my bandwidth is low. So hopefully this is crystal clear audio um, and I'll keep my video off here today. So I'm excited to talk with you all about uh, advocacy and accessibility in telehealth. I know that this is nothing new to many of you. Certainly, it's not new to ACB and our members. It was most recently highlighted over the past couple of years. Folks may remember this little thing called a COVID-19 pandemic, I believe it is. Um, but we know that medical care and uh, the medical and healthcare industries were not accessible to begin with for people with disabilities, especially people who are blind and low vision. Uh, but certainly during the COVID-19 pandemic, this was highlighted, especially when it came uh, to in-person doctor's visits. You know, transportation's always been a barrier there. Well, never fear. Everything's moving online. You can do your doctor's visits remotely. Can you, though? Once you get past the... Uh, the screen to schedule an appointment. And as long as the video user interface is accessible um, and hopefully you're able to uh, read or use your assistive technology to decipher your physician's notes following the meeting. Well, these are all areas where uh, the American Council of the Blind is working to make telemedicine more accessible. Uh, in related areas, one of our legislative imperatives this year is the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Uh, you know, we just talked about all the aspects of telemedicine appointments, but in many cases, doctors have patients use remote monitoring equipment or durable medical equipment to measure and maintain their blood glucose levels. Um, or measure for heart arrhythmia or tachycardia, measure blood oxygen, and so on. All of these devices need to be accessible as well. And then, of course, there are just off-the-shelf consumer products 
Um, I know that uh, I believe I saw Brian Charlson's name on here, a loyal member of the ACB Information Access Committee, and certainly no stranger to all of the off-the-shelf products that consumers use to remotely monitor their health. So those are really the three the three main areas, right? The actual doctor's appointments, the medical products that we use uh, to monitor, manage, and report back to our doctors, and then off-the-shelf products that we use in our daily lives uh, to have independent and private control of our health. In this regard, uh, I'll circle back to the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Uh, This legislation would require the Food and Drug Administration to account for accessibility when certifying new devices. I mentioned several types of devices before, uh, but the, the list goes on and on for devices that doctors can prescribe that are covered or certified by the Food and Drug Administration um, and even covered by Medicare and Medicaid services or CMS. Uh, These devices must be accessible to people who are blind and low vision. And the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act would make that happen, you know, on on an appropriate timeline and with comment periods in rulemakings, just as all other items proceed through government. Um, But once that's done, we would all have the peace of mind by knowing that when we use a continuous glucose monitor or a pulse oximeter, or uh, our doctor has us wear for 21 days, a heart monitor, that it's something that we will be able to use independently and not need to ask our family members, our neighbors, or strangers for assistance. Uh, This bill has been reintroduced in the House of Representatives this year by Representative Schakowsky. We just had Rachel Schrader and Representative Schakowsky is from the great state of Illinois. Um, Also take this opportunity, like Rachel, to plug that the ACB conference and convention will be held in Illinois this year. And registration is now open and the hotel room block will close on June 8th. Um, So be sure to check out acbconvention.org to register and to be sure to get your room in the room block uh, before that price expires. This bill that Representative Schakowsky introduced is bill number HR 1328. And I'll add that it's a bipartisan piece of legislation. Uh, At last count, there were 40 Democrats and four Republican co-sponsors. Most notably, both of the bipartisan co-chairs of the Disabilities Caucus in the House of Representatives, Representative Dingell, a Democrat from Michigan, and Representative Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, have both co-sponsored HR 1328. And that's a great sign and something that we can use to continue to seek additional co-sponsors from the Bipartisan Disabilities Caucus, especially Republican co-sponsors. Back to actual telemedicine appointments. Um, So there's a couple of things that ACB is doing in this regard. First, I hope that folks 
heard during the DC Leadership Conference about the Dear Provider Letter that ACB had, has drafted with the assistance of legal counsel uh, and has made available on the ACB website. It's available, I believe, on the webpage for the Get Up and Get Moving Committee, as well as on the webpage for the DC Leadership Con- uh, Conference. This dear provider letter is something that all of you in the Bay State Council, as well as everyone listening on Zoom and over the ACB Media Network, can use in your own advocacy, whether that's statewide advocacy on behalf of your affiliate, or if you need to do some personal advocacy on behalf of yourself or others uh, because you're having trouble communicating to your caregivers, uh, doctors, or their staff on what is required by law, what they need to do to ensure effective communication with you, uh, what they need to do to provide auxiliary aids and services um, so that you can have the same access along with the same privacy in uh, your telemedicine and really all medical appointments. So that's one item. Another item related specifically to telemedicine is that the the federal government right now is doing a lot of work around digital accessibility, and this ties to <laughs> several others of our legislative legislative imperatives, including the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. But there are some things that government can do that does not require legislation, uh, including completing rulemakings for website and application accessibility under Titles II, state and local governments, and Title III, places of public accommodation within the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Um, in addition to these Title II and III rulemakings, um, various other government agencies are updating and modernizing their uh, regulations under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act um, goes much broader than the ADA to pull in uh, any any sort of businesses or entities that are receiving funding from the federal government, which many, many medical providers, insurance companies, and hospitals do receive federal funding. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services will be updating their Section 504 regulations, and we will be strongly urging them to include the accessibility of websites, applications, online portals for medical providers, uh, because we want all of our members and the broader community to be able to schedule appointments, communicate with our doctors and physicians and have access to all of the necessary information. And again, at the, the same levels of independence, the same levels of privacy as all other patients. One last item that I'll add here is that 
uh, folks in Massachusetts may be familiar with uh, a little-known piece of legislation called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, also known as the CVAA. Um, this legislation was championed and sponsored by, I believe then, Representative Ed Markey, now Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts. And this bill, especially with an ECB, is best known for the requirements around audio description. But there is much, much more to this legislation, including uh, the term of advanced communications services. Now, this is an interesting one because advanced communication services covers and requires the accessibility of two-way text communications, two-way audio communications, and interoperable video conferencing. Uh, now, the, the FCC has completed rulemakings for text and audio communications, but even though interoperable video conferencing is covered, they have not completed a rulemaking to say exactly what that means. Uh, however, on Wednesday, the Federal Communications Commission released a notice of proposed rulemaking to do just that. And that is very exciting. Uh, also, the good news here is that the FCC has not been waiting for these specific rules to send uh, indications out to the, the broader world that these services need to be covered. You know, a lot of times when you think about text, audio, and video communications, you think about a platform like we're on now, uh, something like Zoom, where you have a, a text chat, a Q&A, you can listen or communicate purely via audio, or you can use the video components. Um, we, we think about things like phone calls or FaceTime and other, you know, video calling services. You know what else has text communication, uh, direct messages, email, audio, and video communications? Telehealth portals. And ACB has been successful in uh, working through the Federal Communications Commission to enforce the FCC's rules on uh, a telehealth platform. That is the first time that this has been done. Um, it's, not, it's something that we will be able to share more broadly in the future. Um, but I, I'm very excited that, uh, that through our advocacy and through our understanding of uh, current regulations, that we are able to expand the scope uh, of, of those entities who now know that they are covered by these accessibility requirements and that they must be providing accessible advanced communication services for our members and all people who are blind and low vision. Uh, similarly, with uh, the commercial off-the-shelf 
health products. You know, the, these are a little bit more nebulous when it comes to what the what the laws and regulations say. You know, does a does a smart scale need to be accessible? Does exercise and fitness equipment uh, that consumers either use in a gym or use in the home need to be accessible or do uh, health tracking devices need to be accessible? Um, unfortunately, it's a pretty mixed bag in this regard. But ACB has had some success working with companies like Peloton and Concept2 on exercise and fitness equipment um, and other companies uh, that will remain nameless right now when it comes to uh, smart and wearable devices to ensure that we have access to accessible health information that we can then share back with our uh, caregivers and doctors. Uh, So that is a just quick and dirty overview of what ACB at the national level is doing in many uh, instances in conjunction with our Get Up and Get Moving Committee focused on physical health and wellness, as well as our Information Access Committee uh, to make our healthcare system, especially telemedicine, more accessible for all of us. And Jeanette, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you for your presentation, David. Do we have some time for Clark to take some questions? We certainly do. Thanks for getting things a little bit back on track time-wise. <laughs> um, um, may I take personal privilege and ask the first one? You may. Clark, when it comes to um, facilities and telehealth, in Massachusetts, we're very fortunate in that um, some of the facilities I looked at have done a great job of making things at least partially accessible. Mm. How can we best work with UACB to encourage them to make the parts that are not as accessible more so? That is, that's a great question. And um, I'll relate back to a, a survey that ACB did uh, roughly about a year ago. Uh, it was you know February, March timeframe of 22, uh, where we put it out to all of our members seeking input on the accessibility of electronic health records, telemedicine, patient portals. And we received a good number of responses. I believe it was over over 60 or 80 responses in uh, just a few weeks. But the the information that we got back, Jeanette, I think goes right to your questions. You know, there's there's one company out there that's pretty big and a, a leader in uh, the the telehealth space. And they certainly had the lion's share of responses, but it was a little bit like the three bears. Some said it was totally inaccessible. Others said it was so-so and others said it was great. Um, and that gave us, you know, that gave us pause um, because is it, is it the accessibility? Is it the usability? You know, are things actually accessible, but you need to be um, a computer science uh, engineer to be able to figure it out just due to how it's laid out or does something happen further down the, 
the chain. Once the the platforms created our doctors, then customizing um, the interface and then breaking some of the accessibility. So first, when you encounter an inaccessible system, um, it's always best to have that conversation with the the entity that you are interacting with, whether it's your doctor, their staff, um, have that conversation directly with them. Um, but more than telling them that it's inaccessible, tell them why. Tell them what you were able to do and what you were not able to do. Uh, because chances are they know absolutely nothing about accessibility and the, the barriers that you encounter, as well as the tools you use on a regular basis um, to navigate the virtual environment successfully. Um, in addition to that, you know, it, it could be that the doctors are and their offices are interested, but they don't know what to do, right? And it could also be that they have signed a multi-year contract with that provider. But somewhere on that uh, that portal, that website, there'll be the there'll likely be the vendor name, you know, who's powering the, the platform, um, whether it's a Cerner or an Epic, you know, in the case of MyChart, um, Epic's the company behind MyChart. Knowing that and sharing that with uh, the ACB advocacy team or sharing that with your state affiliate, that may become more actionable data, right? Because the the individual doctor's offices, they might not know about digital accessibility, um, but those platforms better dang know about it or they're going to know about it soon, right? And that's why we're working on all of these regulations in Washington, D.C., because in, in many cases, the Americans with Disabilities Act does not reach those third-party vendors, Right. If you're going to file a legal complaint, it would be a complaint against your doctor's office. But you don't want to. I mean, in most cases, right? You don't want to do that. They're they're kind of the middleman. The real issue is that vendor that's creating the inaccessible platform. Um, so that that's where outreach and advocacy to those companies becomes more actionable, and they have the ability to uh, correct those accessibility barriers. They might not want to do it on their own, but that's what the base state's for and that's what ACB's for, right? Uh, Rick, do we have some raised hands? Yeah, we do. Clark, I was going to say your presentation was epic, but you put epic in there already. So. <laughs> um, Mary Haroyan, please. Hi. Yes, hi, Clark. Thanks for, for being here today. Um, I'm wondering how kiosks work into the legislation, you know, kiosks, like say in medical facilities, you have to check in even at urgent mm -hmm. care, you have to check in. Are they within like the regulations here? Sure. Uh, so quick, uh, not necessarily a disclosure, but just a quick update. Uh, the American council of the blind is in active litigation regarding uh, inaccessible kiosks or self-serve transaction machines with the two largest uh, medical lab providers in the United States, LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics. Um, those are ongoing. We are very confident um, about our, our cases, uh, but 
you know, we're, we're working through the, the legal system in that regard. Um, do kiosks need to be accessible? Well, certainly at ACB, we would argue yes. And they need to be independently accessible for privacy, security, and access for people with disabilities. Um, this goes uh, to the, the Americans with Disabilities Act and effective communication. Um, you know, the, these offices need to provide effective communications for people with disabilities. Uh, if the kiosk is the primary or in many cases, the only way to check in um, to share your insurance information or to schedule uh, an appointment and so on, uh, and certainly the only private way of doing that, then that needs to be accessible. Many of these places have gotten rid of front desks. There's no one to greet you when you come in. There's no one to assist you in the lobby space. Um, there's there's just a tablet on a stick or wall mounted that you're supposed to know about and figure out how to use or ask a stranger to help you. Um, and that's not accessible. So we would argue that both under the Americans with Disabilities Act, under the Rehabilitation Act, um, and frankly, uh, I'd say that it's a discriminatory practice under the, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. For all of these reasons, those kiosks need to be made accessible. One more item here is that the U.S. Access Board is currently going through the rulemaking process um, to create accessibility guidelines for kiosks. Um, that is something that we hope that they can complete and that those guidelines can then be incorporated into enforceable regulations by the Department of Justice and by the Department of Health and Human Services. We have time. We can take one more question, I think. Uh, there's no more hands, guys. Mm-hmm. Anybody could on I, the panelist side? Or David, go ahead. If I could ask one, um, if you've talked, well, we've mentioned Epic a few times. Um, you might have mentioned this, but is ACB working on or does any of the legislation include language related to, uh, how would I call it, the inward facing accessibility of software? Um, here in Massachusetts, might have been a district, it might have been a uh, federal court, I can't remember which, but I think a year or two ago, a um, a lawsuit went against accessibility when it related to Epic. I guess they sort of said, you can be inaccessible, that's all fine. And, you know, uh, here in Massachusetts, of course, as in many other places, the health sector is one of the most important employers there mm-hmm. is. And if Epic is inaccessible, then that really is a major employment barrier for blind people to 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 getting into working in the health sector. That is, that is a great point, David. Um, so a few things here, if and not specific to healthcare, but we can use healthcare as an example. Um, there are so many systems that are inaccessible um, that people who are blind and low vision encounter on a daily basis as part of their jobs, um, as employees. This impacts productivity. This impacts upward mobility. Um, a, an employer has 
the responsibility of providing uh, reasonable accommodations. So there may not be the requirement for a system to be made accessible, but there is under Title I of the ADA, the requirement for workplace accommodations uh, to be able to allow person with a disability to do their job. Uh, The National Organization of ACB had a resolution a few years ago related to uh, the health system being, uh, the new health system being implemented by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And uh, there, there are individuals who cannot do their jobs independently and need to have a full-time reader for them to be able to work with this inaccessible system that's being deployed. Uh, that's one heck of a system, right? So what, what can be done here? Well, there's always the option of filing uh, complaints at the, um, the EEOC, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Offices within, if you are a federal employee with, within your department or agency, or uh, more broadly, at the the federal government, if these inaccessible systems um, and lack of accommodations are impeding your ability to do your jobs. Next, I would highlight again back to the one of our legislative imperatives, the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, specifically calls for uh, a rulemaking by the EEOC uh, to create enforceable regulations regarding workplace technology. Uh, We think that that will move mountains when it comes to these inaccessible systems in the workplace. And then one other item of this bill. uh, So again, I, I mentioned before how the ADA, the covered entities are who the, uh, the consumer or who the employee is interacting with primarily. So it'd be their employer, the business, um, the, you know, the doctor's office. Well, we've included commercial providers and defined commercial providers as those third party vendors who are designing, developing, owning and operating those uh, those internal as well as external platforms that other employment, other, uh, excuse me, other uh, businesses or governments are purchasing and implementing. So this would give us teeth to go after uh, those inaccessible systems. So if you're working in the healthcare industry in Massachusetts, and Epic is the system that they were using. This would then, this law once passed and the regulations once implemented would require Epic as a commercial provider to have an accessible system or face the consequences. Mark, I would like to thank you for um, spending time with us today to talk about this topic. It's a complicated one. Somehow you have a way of making it clear, but I'll have to listen to the recording again because pretty, pretty dense there. But um, thank you again for um, uh, uh, answering our questions, uh, providing, uh, you know, providing guidance. And the work you're doing, of course, at national level is 
is really important. Jeanette, also thank you for, for organizing this session and inviting Clark. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you all and look forward to seeing you all in Schaumburg this summer. Okay. Next up is always one of our most informative sessions that we do every year. Uh, going to invite Kim Charlson back, this time with her hat on as director of the uh, Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library. Uh, we are very lucky to have the Perkins Library. We are very lucky to have Kim in our neighborhood. We're, of course, lucky to have the, the Worcester Library. Every morning when I get up, first thing I do when I turn on my computer is I go and see what are the most recently added barred books, and I usually pick one or two. Then if I'm going to work, next thing I do is I whip open my iPhone, I listen to NFB Newsline. Then when I'm at work, if I've got some questions or I've got a client who'd like to sign up with one of those services, I know where to go at Perkins um, because you've got people who know their stuff, are in, extremely responsive. By contrast, I have somebody from some other state, and it's happened, want to sign them up for NFB Newsline, had to wait three weeks. So we are luckier than, uh, than we think we are where, because some of us don't know about some of these contrasts. But anyways, Kim, welcome back. And um, tell us what's new at Perkins. There's always something new. Thank you, David. And I'm very happy to be here with my library hat on for this segment. Um, I've got a lot to share, so I'm going to dive right in because um, I always like to share some of the statistics so you get a sense of the scale of our library program, particularly the Perkins Library. Um, but as you said, there is a lot of great work happening at the Worcester Talking Book Library as well. So, um, so the active patrons in Massachusetts that we're providing services for is almost 21,000 people. It's 20,600. 20, um, our circulation from the Perkins Library year to date, and I haven't counted the, the fourth quarter yet, and we're already at 488,000 titles that have been circulated to borrowers in Massachusetts. We've sent out 1,660 players, um, either replacement or for new patrons. And while I understand today there are some technical problems with Newsline, it always happens on the weekend, um, those are being worked on by NFB headquarters where Newsline is, and hopefully it'll be up and running soon. So, um, but our active users in Massachusetts who contact Newsline on a daily basis is 4,000 individuals. Um, last quarter, they made 25,000 calls to Newsline, which reflected 448,250 minutes. That's a lot of days of reading. Um, there's multiple ways to get Newsline. As you may know, you can get it on from the web Web users, there's 72,500 web sessions took place last quarter. Um, in your pocket, some people turn on their Victor streams in the morning and they listen to Newsline and it downloads the latest content and then just downloads it over the top of what was there the, the previous day. So in your pocket user downloads was 225,000 downloads last quarter. 
Some people opt to get newsline deliveries via email, and we had 20,500 email deliveries. We also track um, iDevice, so your iPhones, your tablets. There's 9,645 devices signed up, so probably multiple users have an iPhone. They might have a tablet, so it's counting you know, whatever device they're using. Um, we've had one new paper added last, um, almost a year ago now. It was the New Bedford Standard Times. Um, and it was selected because of a lack of coverage um, in the southeastern Massachusetts area. I am hopeful that this year we will add another paper. And that paper is in the northeastern section of the state. And we are looking very seriously at adding the, um, the Salem um, newspaper, whose name escapes me right this minute, but I have a document at work all about that newspaper. So I can't remember its name, but um, it, it's, it's likely to be our next addition to Newsline, which I'm very excited about. Um, I try to cover... Um, with additions to Newsline areas of the state that really are not being covered. So um, Northeastern Mass was, and the Cape Ann area was was not covered. And the Salem paper is a daily, which is also a consideration. Um, I like to get the best bang for my dollar with Newsline and picking a daily paper to add to the service gives us daily content as opposed to a weekly or some, or a five day a week paper. So um, BARD users, David mentioned BARD. We have 1,800 active BARD users who average per month about 10,000 monthly downloads. So they are busy. Um, in Massachusetts, we sponsor Bookshare memberships for our borrowers. So um, if you didn't know that, what it means if you're a current Bookshare subscriber and you've paid for your subscription, I can't help you until your subscription is about to expire. But when that time comes, I can help you um, by putting you onto the sponsored Bookshare membership program that the Perkins Library covers so that your access to Bookshare um, can be um, free of charge provided by the Perkins Library for anyone in Massachusetts. Um, looks like my, um, the average monthly download rate for Bookshare content that, that I track, um, of the 180 people right now who are active users of the sponsored Bookshare membership, they download about 1,000 titles a month. So there's a lot of content on Bookshare, as those of you who know it. It has um, over a million text-to-speech titles, now some human-narrated titles, and all of the Braille titles if you use refreshable Braille devices. Phone calls for the, uh, the library um, average about 4,500 a month. So that's a lot of phone calls. You are communicating well with my staff um, and have a lot of requests that we fill on a regular basis. So one of the fun things that the Perkins Library is doing is around our telefun Zoom activities. So practically every day, in fact, every day, Monday through Friday, 
Um, there are activities, events, things going on in our telephone Zoom room. So on a quarterly basis, we support. Um, there are activities, events, things going on in our telephone Zoom room. So on a quarterly basis, we support about 125 unique programs that happen with um, individual counts of attendees at one almost 2,000 patrons participate on a quarterly basis, listening last quarter to about 13,000 uh, minutes of content, because that's how Zoom counts things, um, which is about 215 or so hours of, of content. So those of you who are familiar with Telefun know that we have audio described movies on Monday and Friday nights, every other Friday night, usually. Um, we have we have done yoga. It's not currently operation operational because of uh, we we got to low con low participation. But um, I do have a growing list of people who are interested in resuming our yoga program, our accessible yoga through our Zoom room. We have accessible bingo um, twice a month. The this I think it's the is it the second and fourth? I didn't write that down, but. Um, yeah, next week is our bingo, so it must be the second and fourth because I did it um, a couple weeks ago. And that's a lot of fun, and we give prizes. So, you know, Dunkin' Donut gift cards, here we come. You know, that's what you win if you win your bingo round. We do have prizes. So, um, we also have Teaching Tuesday, and those are workshops that happen on Tuesdays that are about a topic, um, an informational information session. We have author talks. Um, we had a very interesting um, antique music box presentation by Jim Crott, who's a former ACB board member from Florida who collects antique music boxes. And he did an amazing demonstration and playing his old time music boxes, which are kind of like, you know, player pianos, antique music boxes. They're pieces of furniture. They're gorgeous. It was amazing. Um, so we try to do creative, interesting things like that um, in in the Zoom room. So we've got um, Library Without Walls, which is our longest program. That's generally author talks with the author themselves, a presentation, and then you have an opportunity for question and answer with the author. Um, we are loading hotspots. For patrons, um, if you're traveling somewhere um, and might be concerned that your internet or cell service might be a little tough, um, generally hotspots can work. Um, they work a little better sometimes in poor cell areas. If there's no cell coverage, there's not going to be any hotspot coverage. But hotspots tend to be a little more helpful if you're trying to connect a laptop or um, your Victor Stream or something like that where you want to download content. And we are loaning those to encourage patrons to have connectivity to the internet. Many of you may know that we are also now loaning and have been for about a year now, the um, Braille e-reader being distributed by the um, National Library Service. It's the Zoomax Braille Reader um, e-reader. And we've distributed um, over 500 units. So there are a lot of people out there using the Zoomax e-reader. And 
We, we have two ways where you can get the content for your e-reader. One is BARD. You can download directly into your device yourself. But if you're not particularly confident about downloading, it's just not your thing, but you want to read Refreshable Braille and have a lot available, um, we can also send Braille titles on a cartridge and you use the cable that comes with your e-reader to connect the cartridge to your device. And once that connection is made, the, the ZoomX e-reader recognizes you plugged it in and there's a cartridge attached. We're going to transfer all the content from the cartridge onto your e-reader. And it just does it in about two seconds. So it's an easy way to get a lot of books if you're not real comfortable doing BARD and finding them independently. Um, we've seen a pretty significant increase in our Braille statistics. Um, and I'm hoping to see more of a growth as we distribute more of the e-reader devices. Um, many of you have talked to Corey Cadlick, the assistive technology specialist at the library. He helps people with BARD, um, e-readers, Bookshare. He does all that sort of um, technology support for your library services. So if any kind of problem comes up, call the library, ask to talk to Corey, and he will help you out. Um, Last year when I spoke to you, we talked about the, the new um, service delivery model that we're looking at called duplication on demand or custom cartridge, where you can um, receive your books, multiple books on a cartridge if you're interested in a series and you want the first six books in the series, they can come to you all on a cartridge. Um, if you're not so interested in having multiple books on a cartridge, you find it confusing, we can still set you up for duplication on demand, which means you could still have the book or books, um, but we might, because you're having some difficulty navigating multiple books on a cartridge, um, allow you to get one book per cartridge so that it's not difficult for you to access your books. So either option is available. Um, we've also been running a raffle this um, for the last, well, from January through June, we are doing a custom cartridge raffle program. And that is if you sign up for and are receiving um, books through our custom cartridge duplication program, you can have your name placed on a, on a list um, to win a, a drawing we are doing each month to recognize five patrons per month with a $25 gift card to Amazon, Target, Duncan, or I always forget the fourth one too. Um, there is a fourth place, Amazon, Duncan, Target, or someplace. <laughs> I don't remember who the fourth place is. <laughs> um, Amazon and Target and Duncan are so good, but um, there might be another one, which I am not remembering. But um, so if you want to have your name put on the list, you just email the library at library at perkins.org. Or call and say, you know, I'm getting duplication custom cartridges. I'd like to be in the raffle. And my staff will make sure your name gets placed on the list. We have not done our drawings for um, May yet because May's not over and June is coming. So you still have a chance to win. Um, regarding our funding, I have some very good news to share about the library funding for both the Worcester Library and the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library. 
So for fiscal year 24, which begins July 1st of this year, the um, the Board of Library Commissioners, where our libraries receive our state funding, um, made a priority for the last five years, they have been um, identifying one of their line items to ask for a strategic kind of transformational increase in the budget for that particular line item to allow that program, whatever it may be, to, to really transformationally begin to do more and provide expanded services that they haven't been able to do because of present or past funding levels. So for fiscal year 24, the Talking Book Program for Massachusetts, both libraries, were identified as the line item to receive transformational funding. So when the when the governor's budget came out in late January, um, the appropriation basically for Perkins and Worcester was a 3% increase. And we were a little disappointed in that because Traditionally, the transformational um, increases have been more like 25 or 30 percent increases. It was we were glad the governor recognized an increase, but it wasn't what we were hoping for. So in March, the, the Massachusetts Public Library community had Mass Library Day and 400 librarians visited the state house and they went around and advocated for funding for the Board of Library Commissioners with the fact sheet um, of priority funding for the Talking Book Program. And I am so excited to say that when the House budget came out in, um, I guess it was early April, the, the funding increase for both the Perkins and Worcester libraries was 30% which bumped the appropriation recommended by the House up to $3,860,000 and about $650,000 for the Worcester Library. Um, I was thrilled. Then the, the Senate budget came out and it has the same number as the House budget, which is for, for Perkins an $890,000 increase. I am so excited about that because I have many ideas um, and I will be, um, I've, I've already provided a preliminary plan to work on, I could share with you the, the kind of the key areas that we will be working for. My plan talks about ideas as an acronym. So um, I is inclusion, um, to really get the word out and make it known around the Commonwealth that our library exists and it's meant to include people who have disabilities who felt that they were no longer able to read because of their disability. Diversity is a program to focus some of our outreach into uh, minority population communities to make sure that we have resources to um, provide to them in languages other than English, and that we really strive to expand um, our collections to reflect that and work with NLS to have more diverse content. Um, e is education, to expand the work we do with schools, with li school librarians, with 
K through 12, but also community colleges and higher education to begin to really um, leverage the availability of um, accessible PDF materials from publishers that students may need and be helpful to individuals who want to have access, maybe not even are not students, but they want access to books that aren't available in our collection and how other ways we might be able to access them on their behalf, whether that's text, whether it's electronic, um, whether it's scanning with the internet library, the internet archive, which we have partnered with in the past, but have not done as much lately as we did a few years ago. And then accessible services, which means just increasing and expanding the availability of what we do, how we do it, who, who participates, how we communicate things through our newsletters, through our social media, through our website to really expand all of those aspects to provide more information and more access. So that's the basic news. I think I may have a little time to answer some questions, which we usually always have. Um, but if I don't have an answer today, I certainly can get you an answer next week on any issues that might come up. Yeah, we can take a question or two for sure. Before that, if I may, a very shameless plug here. <laughs> um, uh, the second edition of uh, you know my book on using screen readers with Windows, etc., came out about a month ago. Um, that is actually available on Bookshare now. And I was really very happy and pleasantly surprised to see, well, not surprised necessarily, but happy to see how easily navigable uh, the book is in uh, Bookshare. And of course, that would count for any other type of book. Yes. Easy to navigate by section. When you're in a section, you can move around by heading very nicely. So I was very happy uh, to to find that out with uh, Bookshare, which you know maybe to some extent is is an underutilized service, but if there are possibilities of people you know being able to get some of these free accounts, still um, yes. it's worth taking advantage. Absolutely, yeah. Bookshare has over one point one million titles from publishers. It is a tremendous resource. Yeah, 1.1 million and one since a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right. So, uh, so do we have any uh, hands raised? Yeah, we got Myra, please. Hi, Kim. You are absolutely amazing. We are so lucky to have you. I can't even say enough words. I have Thank two you. questions. You probably don't have control over either of these, um, but one of the questions has to do with um, the most recently added books. Is there a way for them to divide them out by language or at least to separate them into English and other languages categories? Because it is very hard to wade through 1,475 books when, you know, a third of them aren't English titles. And for people who want the, you know, titles that are less common than English, it's harder for them to find what they want. So that's one question. Mm -hmm. And the other question is about Newsline. Um, when you get something like the Berkshire Eagle, and other papers probably too, the Berkshire Eagle is an amazingly good paper. Very little of it actually appears in Newsline. There's a lot of it that's sort of missing. All the obituaries are there, um, but there's a lot of news content that isn't. And I wondered if you know why that is and if you have any idea how to fix it. 
Good questions. So I'll start with the English on BARD or foreign language titles on BARD. Um, there is a way for you to set what you see in your BARD access. Um, you need to do that um, under your settings. If you go into the settings when you log into BARD, and you may have to do this on your PC, um, I think you might be able to do it on, on your our smartphone, but I, I would recommend that it's probably easier using a, a, a desktop access. You go into your settings and there's a place where you can select that you only want to receive English language titles when you see your searches, your search results for your recently added books. Um, and it is supposed to filter that so that you will only see English. You have to Would do that, that transfer over to the stream as well once you set your account to yes. do that? Yes. Oh, cool. It will. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the second question about um, the Berkshire Eagle and other papers, um, it, it, this is an issue kind of across the board with Newsline papers. Um, they are gleaning their content from the online feed that they are given. So sometimes if you check in early in the day, you won't see a lot of content, but then maybe some more will come in. Um it's, it's part of what they're dealing with in the, the changing world of newspapers being more online. Um, but we, we recently have gone through um, kind of a, an analysis with the um, Worcester Telegram for this same reason, that it was like a lot, not very much content was making it through on a daily basis. The reason they always get the obituaries is the obituaries come from an outside service. And those are directly sent to Newsline every day. So, you know, come higher, hell or high water, you're going to probably see your obituaries <laughs> where there may be articles that really you wanted to see that may not show up. So we are trying to work with Newsline headquarters saying, you know, that the that, that patrons, subscribers are, are saying that they're not pleased that they're missing so much content. So that's an ongoing issue we are working on, and I hope it will get better um, in the not too distant future. Thank you. Maybe we could take just one more question and then we have to move on. Yeah, Cindy, please. And I just want to say hi to Kim and thank everybody at the library for all they've done because the last few years have been so wonderful to have the programs and the online stuff. Thank you, Cindy. That's great to hear. I appreciate and it. And Kim, you starting bingo was so much fun. So thank you for doing starting that. <laughs> you are welcome. Yes, one of my talents so as well as being a librarian <laughs> is I'm a bingo caller about once once or twice, you know, once or twice a quarter, I get to do the bingo calling. So last week was my week. <laughs> and Vicky with our poetry corner is fun. And Aaron does a great job with his trivia. He makes us all yeah. like it's a great team. Gina does a wonderful job and Corey does some shows. So it's really a team effort. It's a lot of programming to make available on a weekly basis, but we're all committed to doing it. And patrons all across the board really are liking to have opportunities to, you know, meet an author, talk to somebody, um, learn new things, just like you would if you were going to your local public library. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. All right, and I, David. Thank, thank you, you, everybody. And you and know how to reach me. If uh, if you have questions, feel free to email me at kim.charlson at perkins.org 
or you can call the library and ask to speak to Kim. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. And I just had a brain flash, which is we got to do a third Thursday bingo some night. So, hey, there we go. Oh, we could do that. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next up, this is a session that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. And I've, I've entitled it bringing alt text to a whole new level. You know, those of us who, uh, you know, cruise around on the web, that's web with a, with a single B not uh, the double B that we're going to be talking about in a few moments. We're used to alt text being things like uh, seeing an image uh, described as young man walking a dog or a little girl sitting on a park bench smiling or something like that. And the first time I opened up uh, one of the pictures and the accompanying alt text on the, uh, on the James Webb uh, telescope site, I didn't think in those terms, I thought, my goodness, this is poetry or in prose terms, this is Hemingway or something like that. Um, stories are being told about constellations and galaxies and things that, you know, really didn't think there's any way we could have any serious access to this stuff because these are satellite photos, the whole stories and the image itself. And uh, people like our next guest, Dr. Kelly Lipo, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, Kelly, what? because, okay, good, because I, all I know is what I read on my screen reader with JAWS, and it says Kelly Lipo, oh, so good. I hope I got that right. Uh, Kelly has been working hard on this whole issue of alt text, and she is an education and outreach scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which as I understand, I think is in uh, Baltimore. Um, Kelly and a colleague spoke at the ACB uh, National Leadership Conference back in March, and one or two of our members were at that and said, hey, you've got to get these people to come and talk to um, our membership, because it was just so informative and so interesting. And uh, I will be quiet now so we can hear your informative and interesting uh, presentation. Thank you for coming. And I know people are really going to like what you got to say to us. Okay. Thank you so much, David. Um, I am now smiling from ear to ear with all of those lovely things that you have said about me and the stuff that I've worked on. Um, so yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Kelly Lebo. Um, as David said, I'm an education and outreach scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm really excited to uh, talk to everyone today a little bit about the image descriptions or the alt text that uh, went along with the first images that came back from the James Webb Space Telescope and also all of the other images that we have released uh, since then. Uh, so the Space Telescope Science Institute, and that's a mouthful to say, so I'm going to call it STSCI from now on, uh, is the home of the science operations for the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, the home of the science and mission operations for the James Webb Space Telescope, and it's also the home of the science operations for the upcoming Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. 
And uh, we recently have started doing a lot of work on writing really beautiful, poetic, scientifically accurate alt text. And I am part of a large team at the Office of Public Outreach at the Space Telescope Science Institute, STSCI, uh, that has been doing this. Um, so I just like to make it clear that I'm speaking on behalf of a rather large team. And this is not all me because I think uh, some people at Twitter on Twitter got the impression that I am writing all of the alt text and I am not. I'm just part of a team that is doing this. Um, so in uh, Baltimore, there is a rather unassuming office building on the campus of Johns Hopkins University. And that is where we command the NASA's next flagship observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope. So a couple of floors above my office, there is a control center where people monitor the health of the telescope. They also download all of the data from the telescope and they send commands back up to the telescope. They schedule all of the observations and they store all of the data that comes back in the MAST archive. Um, and part of our mission at STSCI is to make the world's astronomical information accessible to all. So in part, that means making the data that comes back from these telescopes accessible on an archive to scientists. But also, it means making this information accessible to a general audience. And that's what we do at the Office of Public Outreach. And also making it uh, information accessible to all includes making things accessible to blind and visually impaired people and people who use screen readers. Um, so uh, we had a big campaign to make information accessible uh, around our uh, flagship observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope. So James, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, or Webb, is a 6.6-meter infrared telescope. It was launched on Christmas Day 2021, and we got the first science images back and released to the public in July of last year. So Webb is a... Infrared telescope, that means it sees light that is redder than red. And it's also light that um, our eyes didn't evolve to see. So no one can see infrared light. So we have to take instruments on the telescope and then translate that data um, into other forms that we can visualize and use to learn about the universe. So anytime you look at the universe in different types of light, you learn different information. So one thing that infrared light is really good at is actually peering through dust. So um, the universe is actually full of dust. And by dust, I mean very similar to the stuff that you might find in your house. It's things that resemble very, very teeny tiny particles of sand and things that resemble soot. And so we can look through the dust to see, for example, stars forming inside of a cold, dark nebula. And also, the universe um, is very good to observe in infrared light because we can see some of the first galaxies to form after the Big Bang. 
So galaxies tend to emit most of their light in the visible end of the spectrum, but the universe is expanding and the space between everything keeps getting bigger and bigger. And that means that light that has been traveling to us for over 13 billion years gets stretched out by the expansion of the universe and it stretches from visible light to infrared light. So if we want to study the ancient universe, we need an infrared telescope just like Webb. Um, so the first images from Webb were released on July 12th of last year. The goal was to show the public and the astronomical community that the telescope was working and it could produce beautiful images and really interesting data and help us tell a story about the first galaxies, the early universe, interacting galaxies, uh, the life and death of stars, and planets around other stars called exoplanets. And these were two forms of data images, which are essentially photographs, but, you know, Webb is a lot fancier than a point-and-shoot camera, and also spectra. So a spectrum is what happens when you take light and you spread it out into its constituent wavelengths and you look for patterns in this light. It can tell you what something is made out of. It can also tell you how dense something is, how hot something is, how something is moving, and also how far away something is. And so we take all of this uh, data and we try to learn as much about the universe as we can. And we tried to show that off with Webb's first images. And so these were released as part of a news package that included images and graphics and articles and captions and social media and also alt text, right? So when you're thinking about writing alt text for an image, it's very context dependent, right? It depends on your audience and it depends on the purpose of the image because we are trying to replace the image with text for someone who can't see the image or needs extra support. So when you're writing alt text for an astronomer, for example, it's different than writing for the general public, which is different than writing for kids. And also, if you are writing alt text for an image, which is the star of the show, it's different than if you're writing um, alt text for a thumbnail where you're scrolling through something quickly and you just want to be able to identify something in a big list of things. Uh, so um, there's also uh, something that we like to call extended descriptions, and we realized that we needed to write those for things that are a lot more complex. Things like charts and graphs and infographics. Um, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes you need more than a thousand words to describe something. Um, so we initially released these as accessible PDFs, and we've done a lot of work on the back end of our website. And now these are available as a modal that you can um, open and hear extended descriptions of some of our more complex items. So... We were planning these, this big uh, release around Webb's first images. And we knew that we wanted to make these images accessible to a general audience. Um, this is both like a legal and technical requirement for us because we're a government contractor, so we have to be 508 compliant. 
But also, there is the thought that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Okay, and then the question is, well, well, how do you do this right? And so when I first started at STSCI, I asked around and I was like, well, how do you write good alt text for astronomical images? And no one knew. So we kind of had to figure it out on our own. Um, and we um, did this through um, experimentation and practice among our teams of writers and designers and educators and scientists. Um, we had input from uh, the blind and visually impaired community. Uh, we had to adjust the technical constraints on our websites. And then we began developing standard styles and guidelines for how to do this. Uh, and this approach was to have this not as an afterthought, but rather as part of the editorial process of creating a whole news package. So the same sorts of um, editorial checks and balances and thought went into creating the text of a news release as it did to creating these alt text images. Um, and the goal of the alt text was to create something that was beautiful um, and maybe even a little poetic because these images are really beautiful, but also something that was scientifically accurate, which was also a big concern because we are the science operations home of web. So we wanted to make sure that all of the science was right. So the process involved research and then drafting reviews by scientists, subject matter experts, editors, accessibility experts. And then we pulled in one of our team members who uses a screen reader. He's visually impaired, not blind. So he could listen to the alt text with his screen reader and then look at the image and sort of tell us where we were going wrong. And that process was really valuable for developing the alt text for these first images. Um, so I think um, I'm going to take a couple minutes and just read to you some of the alt text and then tell you why, as a scientist, I find these particular images really compelling and tell you a little bit about the science. Okay. So we'll start off with Webb's first deep field, <clears throat> SMAX0723. Thousands of small galaxies appear across this view. Their colors vary. Some are shades of orange, while others are white. Most appear as fuzzy ovals, but a few have distinct spiral arms. In front of the galaxies are several foreground stars. Most appear blue, and the bright stars have diffraction spikes, forming an eight-pointed star shape. There are also many thin, long orange arcs that curve around the center of the image. So in this image, what we're seeing is the whole history of the universe compressed down from three dimensions into two. So light takes time to travel. So any astronomical image will have things that are close by to us and closer to us in time, and things that are further away from us and further away in time. The uh, stars in the foreground of this image are in our own Milky Way galaxy, and they have this, this eight-pointed star shape because of the optics of the telescope. And eight-pointed stars are something that's very characteristic of web images. Hubble images will have four points on their stars. 
Then beyond those stars in the center of this image are these white fuzzy ovals. And that's a cluster of galaxies. So our Milky Way is a galaxy. And this is a cluster of galaxies. And it's made out of stars and gas and dust and dark matter. And this galaxy cluster weighs so much, it has so much gravity, that it is warping space-time around it. And so that's what those arcs I mentioned are. Those are background galaxies that are shining through the central galaxy cluster, and their light is getting bent and distorted and warped and magnified. And that's really important because magnifying allows these small, faint background galaxies to show up bigger and brighter than they normally would. And that allows us to study some of the first galaxies to form after the Big Bang. So it's a really cool image. Uh, Moving on to another image. Uh, This one is of the cosmic cliffs of the Carina Nebula. And so this is in our own Milky Way galaxy. The image is divided horizontally by an undulating line between a cloudscape forming a nebula along the bottom portion of a comparatively clear upper portion. Speckled across both portions is a star field showing innumerable stars of many sizes. The smallest of these are small, distant, and faint points of light. The largest appear larger, closer, brighter, and more fully resolved with eight-point diffraction spikes. The upper portion of the image is bluish and has wispy, translucent, cloud-like streaks rising from the nebula below. The orange, cloudy formation on the bottom varies in density and ranges from translucent translucent to opaque. The stars vary in color, the majority of which have a blue or orange hue. The cloud-like structure of the nebula contains ridges, peaks, and valleys, an appearance very similar to a mountain range. Three long diffraction spikes from the top right edge of the image suggest the presence of a large star just out of view. So what we're seeing here is a cold, dense, dusty, star-forming area. This is an area where new stars like our sun are forming. Um, And above and right out of frame are a couple very hot young stars, and they're eroding the nebula that they're forming inside of. And so that's why we see these wispy streamers coming off of this mountain range-like nebula. And if you look closely at this image, you see things like jets and shocks and glowing areas, and these are all indicative of the messy, chaotic process of forming new stars. And this is an image that will keep astronomers really busy for a long time. And then, um, so those are two descriptions of some of the most beautiful images to come out of Webb's first uh, science release. And now we're going to talk about something that is not quite as beautiful, but to me as an astronomer is really, really cool. And so we're going to talk about a spectrum. So remember I said there are two types of data, images and spectrum. So let's talk about a spectrum. So what we're going to look at here is a planet going in front of its star. And the starlight's filtering through the atmosphere of the planet and different molecules inside of that atmosphere will absorb different types of light and we can see the chemical fingerprints in that spectrum. So we're looking at the spectrum of a gas giant planet. It's about 700 light years away 
And uh, the planet orbits its star every four days, which means if you lived on this planet, you would have a birthday every four days. I'm not sure if that would be a good thing or a bad thing. So here is a description of this spectrum. And I'm just reading this out to show you that if you really want to get into all of the details, they exist for um, in these extended descriptions. So graph labeled near spec prism consists of 209 data points, each with a gray error bar. The points range in wavelengths from 0.5 to 5.5 microns, and the amount of light blocked from 2.08% to 2.3%. The data points are not connected. They follow a jagged trend from left to right with a number of broad peaks and valleys. A solid blue line with several prominent peaks and valleys represents the best fit model. The blue best fit line generally follows the trend in the data. It intersects some data points, but does not match the data perfectly. 10 wavelength bands are highlighted with colored semi-transparent vertical bars, each labeled with an element or compound. These correspond to spectral features. Some of the features overlap. These include a sodium feature, four water features, two carbon monoxide features, two carbon dioxide features, and a sulfur dioxide feature. Some of these features, including water, carbon dioxide, and sodium, are characterized by prominent peaks or sets of peaks apparent in the data and model, while others are subtler. Okay, so that's like a lot, and I apologize. I apologize for you know including getting into the weeds there. Um, but what's really exciting to me is that we can use this data to figure out what the atmosphere of this planet 700 light years away is. Like physics works. And to me, <laughs> this surprises me every time. And I find this exciting. And maybe that's why I became an astronomer. Um, that the things that you learn in chemistry class, we can apply to things in space. Um, so I'll just finish up by saying we received... Uh, a lot of uh, really positive feedback on our alt text descriptions um, on social media. We, we had a bunch of articles written in the press about this, and this really gave us a boost to continue this accessibility work. It was a psychological boost, boost, and it was also a resource boost. This got back to NASA that we were doing this, and they were very hugely supportive of it. Um, and it's also filtered out to other astronomical observatories who are taking our lead and writing um, their own image descriptions for their astronomical images. So I hope this is a start of a real movement in the astronomical community to make things accessible to people who can't see the images. Um, and we've also discovered that this is a case of universal design. So captions are one thing. Captions might describe a little bit of the science of the thing that you're seeing in the image and how it's made and that sort of thing. But they're not alt text, which is really just a literal description of the things that are in the image. And if you're not used to parsing an astronomical image, even if you're sighted, this can be hard to do. So sighted people have come back and told us that this is actually very useful for them as well. And also we've heard from colorblind people who also like want to hear about the different colors that are present in the images that they can't pick out and they find that's really useful. So we've been trying more to incorporate descriptions of color in our image descriptions. Um, and 
we are now in the process of going back through some of our back catalog of images. I have an intern working with me this summer to write image descriptions for over 30 years of Hubble images. We probably won't get the whole catalog done, but we'll get the most important ones done. Um, and we're really incorporating this into our workflow of all of the outreach products that we are making to make sure that they're accessible to everyone. Uh, and with that, I'll thank you for your attention. And I think I have a couple minutes to uh, answer any questions. Thank you, Kelly. I'm, uh, I, I think we could see the poetry in just your, your talk and the way you use language. And I'll tell you, I chair a fair number of meetings. So I think the next time somebody is just talking too long, I'm going to say, excuse me, sir, um, you are warping space-time. Please uh, be <laughs> quiet. I, like, I love that one. Um, anyway, I have a quick question myself. Um, are there any uh, thoughts, plans, ideas of maybe taking some of this information and uh, developing a smartphone app? Because for me, you know, sitting in front of the computer is one thing. It's nice. But boy, I'd mm -hmm. like to sort of sit in front of this stuff like on a warm summer evening outside under the stars, even if I couldn't see them and enjoy listening to some of this uh, somewhere other than in my, you know, sort of antiseptic office environment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that is a good idea. No plans at the moment for that. Although all of our social media um, all has alt text and I'm on the team that reviews all of that to make sure that it's a good description and that it's scientifically accurate. So if you want to scroll through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook um, on your phone, that's always available. Okay. Do we have any hands raised? Yeah, we do. TC, please. Hi. Um, as someone who's been in love with the cosmos since childhood, <laughs> I, I really love this. Um, the spectrum um, alt text is really fascinating to me as a sighted person mm -hmm. because I have wondered for so long how so much information about the actual content of the object in um, uh, long ago space time, how, how that information is um, garnered and um, just your description, this simple description of like sodium features, water features, CO2 features, you know, has filled in some, some gaps for me um, that I've okay. wondered about. So, uh, thank you. This is this is really enlightening. I I do think that some of the the I, I'm the parent of a totally blind person, so who who has minimal visual concepts, I would say, and I I think that you know those while beautiful for those who do have visual concepts. Um, it's daunting. The vocabulary there would be daunting um, for some people, um, but the 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 variety of the alt text is just so encouraging. Um, thank you for this. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, seventy percent of the time on the James Webb Space Telescope in the first year was actually taking spectra rather than images. So really it's kind of a fundamentally spectroscopic telescope. 
And yes, I think that we struggled a lot with this. Like, how do you describe these rather abstract astronomical images to someone with no vision who has no context? And we're sort of muddling our way through. Um, so we're always happy to hear feedback from people about better ways of doing this. But hopefully they're useful um, to the community. We can take one more raised hand. Uh, Myra, please. Hi. Um, I am not a scientist, but I have incredible respect. This is a ridiculous question, and it probably doesn't have a simple answer. But how do you differentiate by looking at CO2, carbon monoxide, sulfur? How can you tell what gas it is? Is it a different color, a different density? How do you know? Yeah, so it's sort of like um, hearing chords on a piano. Uh, so here on Earth, you uh, take light and you shine it through that gas and it makes a particular pattern. It absorbs p very specific wavelengths of light. Um, and then you put that all into a computer model and you're saying like carbon dioxide like absorbs at this wavelength and sulfur absorbs at this wavelength. Um, and then you compare that to your observations and when you can fit the model to the data, that can tell you exactly how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere of this planet. Whoa. So <laughs> it's a question of distance and density and um, maybe not color, though. Yeah. So, I mean, color is a hard thing when you're talking about things in space. But when we're talking about color, we're really talking about differences in wavelength. So it is... Kind uh, of also color. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. I would really like to continue, but we got still some more work to do. But Kelly, I'd like to thank you so much for uh, uh, coming. This, I think the billing lived up to or the the expectations billing. I can't remember exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Great presentation. Great presentation. See, I'm not okay. as good with language as you are, obviously. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, and we look forward to more, um, you know, more uh, output because it's just really great and, and fascinating and mind-bending uh, work, the things that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So we come back to the business portion of our meeting. Again, we still, we still need to go through the uh, two remaining resolutions. The one on the uh, RTAs and the one on, uh, you know, future actions, dialogue, et cetera, with the MCB. Uh, Brian? Uh, I are here. You are here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And do we want to, again, maybe just read just the be it resolved sections um, again? How do we want to proceed? One moment. Jim. <laughs> Hello, I am here. Okay, there you are. <laughs> you have bellowed? Yes, I am here. <laughs> so, when, is there any objection by those present to us restricting ourselves to the resolved part of these two resolutions which we read this morning? If you have an objection, please raise your hand. So the O2 resolution, the now therefore be it resolved um, as follows, is the format David told you is bulleted. So I'm happy to just look that over and, I mean, read that with you now. So here we go. Um, 
as follows is what it says. Um, ADA eligibility renewal procedures for accessing paratransit services be streamlined and made consistent across all RTAs in the Commonwealth. Next, that ADA eligibility renewals be done for all RTAs no less than five years, than five years. So that's one. That any and all required forms be made available online and be fully accessible. That no overly intrusive and irrelevant medical information be required of applicants. And that no RTA require a photo ID above and beyond photo IDs currently acceptable by state and federal government agencies. And be it further resolved that expedited and consistent ADA eligibility renewal procedures for paratransit services be established across all the RTAs for persons whose disability situation clearly has no possibility of improving over time, and be it further resolved that the RTAs, in collaboration with the Department of Transportation, develop a common procedure so that customers whose ADA eligibility has already been established by one RTA be eligible to schedule paratransit trips in other zones and be it further resolved that the RTAs explore the possibilities of creating additional transfer points between adjacent RTAs as well as explore the development of same-day on-demand paratransit services in metropolitan areas like Worcester and Springfield. So the Resolutions Committee recommends do pass and I so move. Do we second. have a second? Byron. We have a okay. I'd second. like to have somebody on the attendees side have the option of seconding. If an attendee could raise their hand. Well, do we have a second from the attendees side? We actually do. Uh, Rick, which one do you want? Christine, please. Hello? Go ahead, Christine. Okay, uh, this would be a great idea. So that way, if you're already connected with the ride, that you could go to, um, you know, like Worcester or, you know, another place and not have to, you know, put money into another account, it would just, you know, all work at the same time and it would all be streamlined. This would be a very good thing. All right, I'm going to take that as a second, as well yes. as, as yes. a comment in favor of adopting this resolution. Yes. Are there, is there anybody who wishes to speak against the resolution? Go ahead, TC. 
Hi, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't really tell if my hand is raised and it keeps disappearing. Um, I'm not so much speaking against the resolution, but I, I have a point of information that I think might need to be included. Is now an appropriate time to talk about that? Absolutely. Um, doing some recent advocacy with um, the ride, I discovered that the overarching policy statement on the web of the MBTA, now this is the MBTA, not um, the state um, MARTA. Um, I don't know what that policy states, but the MBTA stated that um, the paratransit services um, guaranteed that the, the type of vehicle would be an accessible across their different modes, trains, buses, whatever, that there would be a type of vehicle that would be accessible. Um, but when I questioned that what was being sent was not accessible, I was told to refer to a more recent policy from the ride. So after speaking with someone in management and mobility services, I was um, told that the policy published by the ride was more recent than the MBTA policy and therefore the ride policy would prevail. If that is the case and that is true across you know, transportation in Massachusetts, then I think it is, it is really important that this be clarified because any region or any particular service across the Commonwealth could just publish new policies and say that they override the higher level of policy. So I I don't see that in this resolution that it would um, while it might make the eligibility uh, consistent for a while the way that things are operating now it appears that uh, paratransit services in um, the Berkshires could write their own policy and change that. Okay, David, you are uh, maker of the original resolution. Would you like to respond to that? Uh, yeah, well, first off, you know, this is more narrowly targeted on the RTAs. <laughs> I don't understand exactly why, how things work like this, but somehow, for some, well, for whatever reason, the MBTA is, is not an RTA. Um, I don't know what the legal distinction there is. And it's also narrowly focused on paratransit. But, you know, these were issues that we as a fairly new transportation committee came upon, you know, from our own life experience as, as issues that we thought were important. I think it's, I view this as hopefully the start of a dialogue that we have really not had before with the RTAs. And as that dialogue continues, if we come up with, you know, if we discover other issues that need some clarification or some change, we will 
we will go with those. But for the moment, again, this is not MBTA. This is not the ride. And it's also nearly um, focused on, on paratransit and these, and these issues. That David, this is Myra. I can answer the question a little bit. Okay. Um, the, the over, I, the, the, there are no statewide policies. Um, the, the policies come from the ADA. Um, and there are books interpreting the ADA. The question that you raise is the $64,000 question about how to provide on-demand uh, service and at the same time make all vehicles accessible, which is why some of the RPTAs are resisting on-demand through, um, through um, rideshare companies. Um, so you did raise the right question. Um, there is no overriding policy for the whole state at all. Um, and I think the MBTA is doing something that uh, because they are doing the ride using the on-demand service that no one else in the state has the access to, only the MBTA. Um, th that, that is not an issue um, in other places at this time. And there are a lot of people who hope that it doesn't become an issue at other places. Um, so you did ask the right question. And there, you know, there is, I don't think there's any danger that what you say is going to become a state law um, because it's really governed by the ADA anyway. David, if I can say a couple of things, please. Yes. Uh, it's usually not appropriate for, for me to speak, but I, I would urge you in this um, resolution to say that these are talking points. Um, I, I think a lot of these things need to be studied very, very carefully. Um, something like um, requiring or demanding that all uh, all vehicles be accessible uh, 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 could have unintended consequences, which damage a, a lot of people. Uh, it may solve solve something for some uh, group of people, but hurt or make services unavailable to a whole lot of other people all of a sudden because of of just the the difficulty of doing business that some of these things would 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 impose, which the ADA you know addresses right. If if accommodations are uh, to the point where they become uh, untenable for for companies and they can prove it, then they're often way uh, exempted from some of the things. So, uh, you know, the, the, the things in this list are stated as absolutes. I would much prefer that they be stated that these are talking points. These are things that you want to engage in conversation on. There has been an attempt. There was an attempt under the Baker administration early on in the administration, and there were meetings at the State House where they convened all the RTAs. They had a big podium up front. They had all the RTAs there, and they were talking about every one of these issues. Now, I don't know whatever happened to that initiative but i would encourage whoever is working on this to go find that you know those documents and see where that ended up because that may give you give you some good starting points it may give you some good contacts in the various parts of the of the uh of, of the state also so so anyways i i you know if i just uh, uh bottom line what i'm saying here is i i talking points yes Absolute requirements. I think you know you're on a slippery slope on some of these, and I would be very careful. And David, if I could make one more point about that, I do know that 
um, that would seriously affect anyone who takes Uber and Lyft. Um, and I think that while we understand that there are many people who don't have the service we have, um, Uber and Lyft worked very hard to find a way to do accessible vehicles. And so I support Rick's premise. Uh, if I may respond again as a clarification, uh, whether it should be in there or not, accessible vehicles is not part of this resolution. Uh, the part of the resolution that is in here, uh, one, a number of things that we considered low hanging fruit, and we've actually started getting movement on some of those. But with regard to Uber and Lyft, and again, Uber and Lyft are not mentioned here, but, you know, looking into and I think I think even the word exploring is in there, exploring the possibility of the feasibility of developing on-demand services in places like Springfield and Worcester. That's advocated here. Uh, so there are some things exploring, and there are a few things that are demanding because those demands are in direct contravention of the ADA and the FTA guidelines. For example, a $5 uh Dialabat fee for a photo is clearly against um, the ADA. So in that case, we demand something because um, it seems to be pretty unambiguously uh, against the guidelines from the, uh, yeah, from the federal the, government. The resolution would be stronger if you said, you know, this thing needs to be corrected in accordance with such and such uh, language in, in the ADA. You can actually that, reference specific language in the ADA. Yeah, and that's in the whereas clauses. They're all referenced, or most of them. Yes, yeah. it, it okay. does do that in the whereas clauses. It cites the FDA guidance and section and verse, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Every one of the resolved has a parallel in the whereas component of the resolution, which, yes, does document why we believe that this is in violation. Again, um, the whole question of these are talking points as opposed to these are statements of BSCB uh, authority. Uh, you know, if we pass this resolution, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, I'm talking about the ramifications of passing or not passing. If we do pass it and we find ourselves as a board, because we're supposed to act in the name of the membership between conventions. If we as a board discover there's a good reason why they doesn't, they don't do it in a particular way, but the resolution says, this is what we are going to do. Then you find yourself in conflict that is not easy to resolve. I'm going to make a, a recommendation that, uh, the resolution, uh, could be adopted with the direction that effort be made to clarify the uh, we call it talking points intent of the resolution. Might take us a couple of days to pull that off, but I'm pretty sure we could. Just to reiterate the 
The title of the resolution is Standardization and Streamlining of Regional Transit Authority, RTA, Paratransit Service Policies and Procedures. That right. is a super, super broad topic. And, yes. and uh, you know, just to express like what Cheryl was saying before, um, uh, you know, you've probably got 10 resolutions all crammed into one here, guys. Well, again, the one thing I will say is we have shared a, a draft that was completely a draft mm -hmm. with MARTA, and they were very positive about it. And we've already seen movement by the two organizations that were sort of pointed out as the bad boys here and not being resistant at all, but saying, you know, I, I think some of these policies, um, they are there for one simple reason. They've always been there. And nobody from our community has really ever made that much of an effort to question. Again, there may be transportation experts out there and so on, but we, at least as BSCB, we've really never done anything with the RTAs before. Of course, we've done plenty with the with the MBTA. So, so far, um, for those with whom we've shared this, again, completely in draft fashion, and if this wasn't passed, you know, we then we'd, we'd turn it into a bunch of talking points and we'd start our discussions with them. But so far, it's been very positively um, received. Again, the title, of course, is very sweeping, but the individual points are individual points. And the resolves are sort of broken up in that some that, yeah, we want this because Clearly, there's a contravention with the FTA guidelines. And then the other results are, let us explore. And those are things like seeing if we can have a common payments mechanism, because we're not entirely sure that can, can happen, or exploring uh, the possibility of having an on-demand service, which would not necessarily be Uber and Lyft in other parts of the country. A lot of it's done with taxis, but um, those are more in terms of exploring. Those are not, we are demanding that there be Uber and Lyft everywhere in the state. We know that can happen. One other possibility would be to reorganize. I, I don't mean take anything out. I'm just talking about the order in which they're given so that there's a clear section of, as you put it, David, the demand versus the explore side of things that may result in, in a comfortable use of this document. Yeah, I, I think you guys can vote on it. Um, I, I, I don't think you need to rework it, Brian. Okay. This, this is Mary. Can anybody You're hear fine? me? Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would, I mean, I, I'm, you know, on the transportation committee and, and I'm in full support of this resolution. Um, I mean, in terms of maybe some quote unquote, you know, conciliatory, conciliatory language is just adding the fact that we are, you know, prepared and committed to working with, let's say, an organization like MARTA and helping to achieve some of these goals. Maybe adding something like that um, to, to the resolution. But otherwise, um, I mean, there, there are some real issues with the way these RTAs are operating their eligibility process. And, you know, this addresses that. So if, is there anybody who wishes to make a motion to amend this resolution in any way? If so, please raise your hand. You see, you're recognized. 
Thank you. Um, that was, I had raised my hand in the midst of that discussion was uh, not my intent to amend this resolution, but to clarify that I was not saying that the MBTA was uh, guaranteeing that all vehicles would be accessible. Um, I'm, I must have misspoke, um, but that um, all modes of their transportation, their paratransit services, all modes of paratransit services, including trains, would be accessible. So I my concern, however, is really that the policy, the overriding policy over the ride was the MBTA, but the ride um, circumvented their policy. And my concern about, about this regarding eligibility is that um, if there isn't some uh, overarching policy like from MARTA, then the regional RTAs can override um, the best work of this resolution. Understood. Incidentally, I would say that any argument said that our policy is newer than their policy does not grant anybody an override. It's whether or not one or an entity is... Um, in any way regulated by a different entity. So if the MBTA regulates the ride, then what the MBTA says um, overrides whatever the ride says. That makes sense, but not which is newer, one versus the other. Correct. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so at this point, is anybody interested in amending this resolution there's no hands Brian. very good so now we go to a vote on this making sure that all hands are down all those in favor of passage of this resolution indicate by raising your hand okay anybody who wants to vote no on this resolution please raise your hand is 28-4, one against. Very good. Yay. So, and I, I just want to make it clear that what I was speaking about, I was not speaking against the resolution. I just want to make that clear. Okay. Understood. It was, Understood. It was more in terms of the execution against the resolution. Right. Gotcha. One of the things that I would note, by the way, is there's no whereas, excuse me, be it resolved that a copy of this resolution go anywhere but rather, which would allow it to simply be something that the board and the appropriate committee would use as uh, guiding principles, if you will. All right, this takes us to the third and final resolution. <laughs> and Kim, are you ready to read the resolved clauses? Yes, I am. This is um, 03 um, about... MCB and BSCB in their working collaboration. So be, be it resolved that the Bay State Council of the Blind enter dialogue with the acting commissioner, the statutory advisory board, and the rehabilitation, rehabilitation council to assure that performance metrics are developed that can be regularly reported to the SAB and RC related to consumer registration, 
provision of services, staffing levels, and expenditures. And that MCB prioritize the recruitment and hiring of new staff so that delays in providing services are noticeably reduced. That MCB work collaboratively with the RC and consumer groups to identify and develop reallotment project proposals for submission to the Rehabilitation Services Administration. That any new policy proposals that may impact consumers are discussed with the SAB and RC sufficiently in advance of implementation so that their input can be meaningful. That all information presented at MCB public meetings is in an accessible format which complies with the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG2.1AA, that upon request by the SAB and RC chairs, the commissioner arrange for the agency's chief financial officer to be available to respond to inquiries about agency finances at the next regularly scheduled meeting that MCB facilitate communication with the Office of Boards and Commissions so that the governor appoints qualified new RC members in a manner that is timely, cooperative, transparent, and in accordance with the procedures outlined in the Rehab Council bylaws that MCB work with the Rehab Council to assess the impact of the previous Governor's Executive Order 598, which changed one of the RC's foundational documents with no involvement of the RC or consumer groups, and that MCB continue to record board meetings and make them publicly available through its YouTube channel and continue to facilitate appropriate private recordings. There you have it, quite a list of things. Uh, the resolutions committee recommends do pass and I so move. Is there a second? Second. Who seconded? Jim Badger. Thank you, Jim. So now debate on the resolution. Is there anyone who wishes to speak for the resolution? Deanne Elliott, would you like the floor? Um, yes, this is Deanne Elliott, and I had uh, two very small changes. Uh, so I guess I would like to put that in the form of a motion. Um, and I should just clarify as the, the past chair of the Rehabilitation Council, I'm, I'm speaking here just as a private citizen. I'm not speaking um, from any position of of um, authority in the in the group. Um, uh, wh whenever it says rehab council, I'm thinking it could be strengthened just to spell that all out completely and say rehabilitation council, just for formality. It's a small linguistic thing, you and then be a friendly amendment. Yes, absolutely. 
and this is a, a, all a very friendly amendment because I do support the, the resolution. The other thing is that while I support the um, resolve clauses, there was one portion of the uh, whereas clause that supported the the um, pardon me, the resolve clause that I was wondering if we might change or consider changing. And that was the portion about appointments and the language as it currently reads, I think this might be in the fifth bullet point, says, just a moment. This is a fail, failure to establish an efficient and transparent process for appointing RC members, resulting in year-long delays in finalizing appointments, lack of meeting quorums, and appointment of several unqualified members. Yes, it was the part about the appointment of several unqualified members. I mean, I totally respect the governor's right to, to make direct appointments, and I totally appreciate um, the service that any volunteer wants to make on behalf of the blindness community. So I, I don't know that we can get into what's qualified or not qualified because that's, you know, rather more a matter of, of um, it's much more subjective. So you're but, asking that we strike that component of this whereas clause? Is and that replace or, it with- Or turn um, it around and make it more of a positive affirmation that appointments be qualified members? No, no, I was thinking, uh, bear with me just one moment. Uh -huh. I have some notes here and it's taking me a second to find them. Um, strike the clause that says appointment of several unqualified mm -hmm. members and replace it with several direct gubernatorial appointments. Because it was really the process that I think was problematic. I had been on the RC for about eight years and had never seen a direct gubernatorial appointment. And then we had a whole flurry of them at once. And to some degree, there was some miscommunication going on, but I, I really do feel that the process was what we might want to focus on. As committee chair, I would accept that as a friendly amendment. So the last one would read um, appointment, let's see. So that the quorums, and this is an appointment of several direct gubernatorial appointments. Several direct gubernatorial appointments. Several, several direct gubernatorial appointments. That's what I have written here. And we take away the unqualified members. Yeah. That's simple. Okay. I would add one thing too. If it's actually written year long, I'd make it years long. Year long would be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that there, Kim? It, it is years long in the in the resolution. It's I misspoke that didn't get the S in there. I was trying to be a smart aleck more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. It does say years long, yes. <laughs> All right. Anybody else wish to speak to this resolution? I do. Cindy, you're recognized. Uh, kind of continuing along Deanne's theme, which is what I wanted to speak about. I find a lot of the whereas bullet points, they seem to be in reaction to past events, which are now past events. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see rather something, again, looking towards the future and um, more positive put in there, you know, whereas we like to improve communication. You know, I, I don't have the words right now, but 
to take out a lot of that kind of somewhat subjective and negative um, observations. Because I don't think they're that relevant now. Of the original resolution, correct? Excuse me? David is oh, the original uh, writer of this resolution. So I'm asking um, for him to comment on that. My, my comment would be context matters. And the last five years matters. And the therefore be it resolves are looking forward. But I think, um, I don't think, you know, if we make it all, all the whereas is all positive, it's sort of like, well, what's the context in which we're writing this from? And we're writing it from a situation that we hope will be resolved, but where we have lost confidence in the MCB in many ways. And even if there is a new leadership, that's new leadership uh, has to perform and perform differently than the leadership in the past. So I would say context matters. Again, there may be a few places where we can lighten up the language, like like, uh, like what Deanne yes. said about unqualified members. But I'd stand. I, I would stand in favor of the fact that context matters. And as like somebody once said before, you know, um, never waste a good crisis. And that sets up the crisis that has been, I think, in place for a number of years, or at least many, uh, many people in the blindness community thought so. I, I, I accept that, that viewpoint. I, I am in favor of lightening up the language. Um, I don't feel like it's hard to sort of wordsmith at 4.30 in the afternoon on resolutions that, you know, we just saw last night. So, but that's, so I, I'm not going to do that, but that's my theme. Thank you. Call in user six, please. Um, I just wanted to say that um, the Re the Rehabilitation Act does enumerate specific qualifications that RC members need to meet um, in order to be appointed by the governor to the Rehabilitation Council. Yes. I don't know if that's why it said unqualified members. Again, I, I was chair of the RC for a number yep. of years. Yep. Uh, and we absolutely had a list of, it must include a representative from labor, a representative from employers, a representative from um, a major contractor, and a list of those kinds of things. Uh, so there are some list of qualifications not that everybody needs to meet all of those qualifications but people need to be representative of that sector jim badger please jim go ahead um, i just wanted to second what what um david said about context i i think that um this last period of time uh mcb has been in a situation that, in my experience, I mean, I, I've been a consumer since 1970. I've never had seen the agency in this kind of shape. And, and I do agree now we have a new leadership. I can't speak for John Oliveira, but I think that he's as aware as any of us of how, um, how bad the situation got to be. And I, 
And I do think that, um, you know, we do have new leadership, which is wonderful. The agency is still in crisis because it's going to take us a while to rebuild what it took a little while to break. And so I actually, I don't think that it's an attack on the agency or on the, on the new acting commissioner or on the people who work there to express what we've all just been through and what we don't want to go through again. Thank you. Is there anybody else who wishes to speak on this resolution? Deanne's hands up. Deanne? Yeah, I just wanted to um, uh, agree with, with Brian that the Rehabilitation Act does list the individual seats that will be represented in terms of the stakeholder groups that will be represented. And I think this point in the resolution goes more towards uh, which individual will fill that seat. I just wanted to provide that clarification. Understood. All right. Uh, I think we've had sufficient discussion on this resolution at this point. So I'm going to call for a vote. All those in favor of passing resolution 2023-03 indicate by raising your hand. All those opposed to this resolution indicate by raising your hand. 27-4. Zero against. Very good. So this resolution has been adopted. Um, and I turn everything back over to President David Kingsbury. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for all your effort um, chairing, um, chairing this committee, um, dealing with my writing and Deanne's comments, and well, my writing especially. Um, um, and thank you all for a, a good discussion. I think we clarified some some points there. Um, it is a little bit late in the day, and Brian, I think I think uh, I will take you up on your offer to sort of pass on doing the demo on um, um, you know artificial intelligence. Again, we will close um, our day session right now. I want to thank everybody who. Um, oh well, let me. Can we before talk about I, the auction too, and Mr. Yes, I'm. I'm first going to oh, say. Wonderful. Yes, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're all coming back. We want seven. everybody to come back at seven. You're all coming back at seven o'clock. I don't think I needed to remind people, but I'm, we will remind anyways. Uh, seven o'clock for the auction. Uh, Brian will be our auctioneer, along uh, with Tim, Tim and Jerry Barrier. Oh, great. So we got the, well, I won't say three stooges, but uh, anyways, uh, no, we got three great folks, including the, the cookie monster from the West Coast. Great. Uh, Jeanette will also be um, taking part of that in terms of um, describing the uh, the items. Nona Haroyan will also be taking down uh, the winners and um, so we can track you all down. Uh, later. Uh, one thing I'm going to try to do in the next half hour or so is resend out to the whole group uh, the list of items. There have been a few additions, and then plus if I send it out again, it's up near the top of your inbox as opposed to probably 50, 70, 100 messages down there. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, um, do your research so you come uh, ready with your wallets open. And 
that is our annual highlight, and we know we're going to have a great time uh, because you guys are slick auctioneers. You do such a great job. Uh, beyond that, though, again, I want to thank everybody um, who helped organize um, this uh, um, today's uh, convention session, the various committee uh, chairpersons, the members of those committees, all those who agreed, agreed to be uh, speakers. Um, you know, it's at moments like this when we come together to do a convention that I really feel the team, the community that we are as BSCB, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of this organization. So everybody have a good rest of the early afternoon and come back ready to bid. Hold on, David. Do we, we use do the same participant hand? We are using oh. the same participant list and we do have one the raised link hand. for the auction is what I asked. All right. Yes. Uh, would, will panelists use the same panelists? Yes. Link? Rick? Okay. Yeah. So everybody come back using their same link. Okay. Good, yeah, good, everybody good use the same link. I'm going <laughs> to shut the meeting down now. Hold on. Give it. Give me one second, Rick. We've got one raised hand and I don't know if it's a question about tonight. It's Roz. So I'm going to let her ask really quickly and then you can hi, shut it yes, down. Hi, Jeanette. I'm sorry. Yes, you just answered my question. It was, how do I, do we get in the same way as we just got yes. into the meeting? All so right. you just answered yep. it. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to reopen the meeting about 6.30, guys. The auction's at 7, right? Yes, 7. So we'll, re we'll seven. reopen the uh, the Zoom room about 6.30, and the stream will come back up about that time, too. So thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you in a little bit. Thank you all, and thank you, Rick, and thank you, Jeanette, for, uh, for your work uh, hosting. Thank you.